0: Hey, kid. Heard about a job. I'm putting together a crew.
1: You in? That's yes.
0: Welcome to Now Playing's Star Wars Retrospective Series.
1: might wanna buckle up, baby.
0: Hosted by Arnie.
1: I heard a uh, story about you. I
0: was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. Stuart. I like this kid. And Jacob. You must have known you'd see me again. It's counting on it. Didn't plan on it being so soon. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers. you got a really good feeling about this. Listener discretion is advised. All right. Course to castle is set. Plugging
1: coordinates in now. Just keep your pinky on the oak. We'll try not to mess anything up.
2: Today, we're discussing Solo, a Star Wars story. Starring Alden Ehrenreich, Jonas Swodamo, Woody Harrelson, Amelia Clark, Donald Glover, Tandy Newton, and Paul Bettany. Directed by. Hmm, that's. that's the credits said
3: Ron <laughs> Howard, so. 70%.
2: Possibly 80 <laughs> But it was at one point Lord and Miller. This is Arnie, Coast host of Now Playing, and I'm a Flyer and I'm a podcaster. And Stuart?
1: And this is fellow scumrat, Jacob.
2: Didn't we just discuss Star Wars? It felt like we just did this.
3: Actually, I still got things to say. I have actually went back <laughs> and re-watched Last Jedi. I- oh, look, you,
1: you want to talk about Last Jedi and hate on that some more? I'm down. Let's go.
3: Yeah, I think I was too kind. I had a friend who doesn't get out much, and when it came up for home viewing, he was desperate to see it, and I said, okay, this should be interesting. I couldn't believe how awful it was.
1: Yes, it is.
3: (laughs) I need to stop
2: ranking the movies when we review them, because I need some time to settle in. You ranked
1: that one very high from memory.
3: Your rankings are very weird, because the way I understood your review was... I like Force Awakens, recommend, and then I like Last Jedi because it undid everything about Terrible Force Awakens. (laughs) All
2: I'm saying is both of the sequel movies, episodes 7 and 8, have percolated down in my rankings a little bit. Still recommends for both, but fandom has been torn asunder Mm. by... Episode 8. Forget Marvel Civil War. This should have been called Star Wars Civil War. Star Wars fans at each other's throats. It is so polarizing a film that I have friends whose houses are adorned as much as mine with Star Wars memorabilia saying I'm just not going to Episode 9 or I'm just not going to any more of the Disney films. Some went to this saying I'll continue with original trilogy characters and watch what they do there but I am done with Rey, with Finn with any of that and then there's others who are like this is the second coming this is the storytelling we should have had all along from Star Wars (laughs) people love that movie and call it the best second only to Force Awakens or it's a heaping pile of dung and their opinion of the Force Awakens seems in many cases to influence their reaction to episode 8 those who didn't like Force Awakens tend to think episode 8 is an improvement. You. I disliked many things about The Force Awakens, and I think 8 was an improvement.
1: Yeah, I saw some toxicity. It seems it carried over from The Last Jedi. People, of just certain political persuasions. They didn't like maybe the women in charge or the diversity, and it seems like now they're going after Kathleen Kennedy, and this was their boycott solo. We're not gonna take The Last Jedi, so now we gotta take a stand and boycott everything to get her out of there. She's the reason for that horrible movie, and why everything in Star Wars sucks now.
2: Listen, there's definitely some people dog whistling about that, but that's not the majority of people who dislike Episode 8 and are walking away from Star Wars because of it. That is a small minority. I know many... Many people, I mean, I'm talking about people I've known for a decade, people I have worked at Star Wars celebrations with, who are still huge Star Wars fans, but are just done with sequel movies, and one of them did go to see Solo and tweeted this picture of them pretty much alone in the theater, and they tweeted, Thank you, Ryan Johnson, for making Star Wars films
1: empty. (laughs) I heard some stories about that and I was nervous when I bought my ticket. I bought it weeks and weeks ahead of time. So of course there was plenty of seats and then something happened. I had to change the time and I had to buy some different tickets. And this was just a week before the film and the theater was still pretty much available for my choosing what seats I wanted. When I got there, though, it was pretty much sold out. You know, there's those front rows that no one ever likes to sit in. And I went to a late showing on Thursday night, and it was a packed theater. So maybe it's hit or miss, depending where you live.
3: Yeah, I'm getting the sense, for a lot of reasons, this is not the event movie of summer, even though it should be. Like, Star Wars is back in May. This should be everything that we want. It's focused on Han Solo. But I pick out three problems. One, yes. Yes. It's coming after Last Jedi, which feels both too soon and left a bad taste.
1: Why is this in May instead of December since they moved to that schedule? Why is it just six months later?
3: It's weird because they've always
2: wanted to get their movies back to May. Remember episode seven was supposed to be in May and then JJ said, I can't get it done by May and Bob Iger said, okay, we'll do December. And then JJ said, I can't get it done by December. How about we do that May thing again? And Iger was like, no more extensions, get it done. And so they had that done in December. Rogue One, they decided to put to December. But episode 8 was supposed to be right after Rogue One, but it took a little bit longer than expected as well, so it ended up being December. And also in there, we were supposed to have a Boba Fett film, but Josh Tranked, and so that didn't happen, and now I think they were finally looking at getting back on track with May releases, and then Colin Trevorrow did not work out for episode 9, basically, the steady stream of fired-slash-leaving directors continually puts their films behind, and so this was supposed to be Darth Vader. I'm here to put you back on schedule. It's gonna last for one movie, and we'll see episode 9 in 18 months.
3: Yeah, that was my second feeling, is that whatever you feel about Last Jedi, one bad movie does not kill a franchise. I don't know, that one's
1: pretty bad. I don't know if I'd go back to theaters if I didn't have to for now playing.
3: Phantom Menace. I mean, they've survived in the past, but I also think that yeah there's a lot of behind the scenes trouble surrounding this picture in particular maybe all of the new Lucasfilm Kathleen Kennedy Star Wars films are having these problems, but the fact that directors were fired mid-production, I mean, like, not just like, oh, you're not going to make your vision. They were making their vision, and then one day they were moved to executive producer. Lord and Miller, I mean, to catch people up, they did the Lego movie. They did 21 and 22
2: Jump Street. They were brought in here. This movie was written by Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Big chill. <laughs> well, he directed that too, but he was brought back to do The Force Awakens, and this is his fourth Star Wars film. And given that he pretty much defined the Han Solo character in Empire, seems like the right person to do it.
1: So Ron Howard's filming the same script that the other two directors that got fired were doing?
2: Yes, and that's where the trouble lies. Lawrence Kasdan did the script with his son, Jonathan Kasdan. I think he's trying to hand the baton, perhaps, to his son, who is not working as much, whereas other son, Jake Kasdan, just did Jumanji. They wrote the same script, but Lord and Miller thought they were brought in to make a comedy. And Lucasfilm thought they were brought in just to add a little bit of humor to the script the Kasdans had written. And so it became very problematic as Lawrence Kasden was on set demanding things be recorded directly as written on the page. And Lord and Miller saying, hey, we're going to set up this gag and you guys just improvise.
1: So bizarre this is the same company as Marvel, you know, with Disney at charge of everything and they can't get it together. That just seems like such a mess. Keep
2: in mind, these are separate entities. It's like how Pepsi and Doritos are both owned by PepsiCo, but I don't think
3: that the same person is doing quality control or packaging. Yeah, but I'd never been into a Dorito that had this much mold on it. I mean, <laughs> it, it is strange that one series can come out of the gate and have actually even be even more prolific, have even more installments coming at a faster rate that have a higher success rate. And overall audience positive feelings. Yeah, this is four films in. And yeah, it just seems like they're hiring directors who walk away disgruntled. And I'm going to support Kathleen Kennedy on this one. I do think she was perhaps part of the problem with episode eight. But they should have never hired the guys behind Lego Movie. Yeah, what are they thinking that they would want to go that route? If this is Star Wars, you don't go that route.
2: Then you are blaming Kathleen Kennedy as she hired them. So that's really her fault, right?
3: Well, okay, yeah, she made a choice... That Yeah, I could understand her firing. I support her decision to realize it wasn't working and firing them. And from what I understand, a lot of people don't want to say anything too much, but it seems like the biggest problem was that not only were they not following the script... But by being improvisational, they were just behind schedule. The movie wasn't getting done in time. They needed a workhorse to come in and be like, look, we're going to get it done in 52 days and not another day longer.
2: The biggest fight was actually at the end. Maybe they were saying they were trying to film faster. Maybe they were trying to force the hand of in the editing room. But they started shooting less. They were doing fewer angles. They were doing less coverage. They were really limiting the choices. So they were shooting word for word what the script said. And then they were also doing their improvisational takes. But then when they tried to speed up, they were favoring the improvisational takes with the coverage and not giving them what they'd need to use the script takes. So that was the breaking point. They halted filming and then they were gone. And a few weeks later, Opie
1: Cunningham... (laughs) Yeah, we've talked about him what? Once
3: before with Willow. Yes. So there's a Lucas connection there. Not to mention his acting career was American Graffiti. So he has a tenuous connection to this universe. It's not the craziest decision in the world.
1: I think Ron Howard, I'm like, he's a big director. He does like real movies. That's a great choice to bring in and try to save this. And then I look at his filmography. Man, when was the last time I cared about one of his movies? Maybe Apollo 13. I don't care about those Tom Hanks, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code things. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. No thanks, Steve. Get away from me.
2: I haven't seen A Beautiful Mind. It's on my DVR. I want to get to it. Uh,
1: It's all right, I guess.
2: Frost Nixon is also on my DVR. I want to get to it. That's actually probably my favorite
3: of all his films. My favorite films of his are from the 80s. Splash and Parenthood. Sure. Yeah, those are crowd-pleasing films. And he used to have that reputation for delivering that. And I think, you know, over time, most directors drift away from big audiences as they get older. It's, he's just sort of... A guy you hire when there's nobody else is kind of what I feel like. He wasn't busy. I'm not a big fan. I mean, I don't think he's ever made a great film. I think he's made plenty of competent ones. I think that you can trust Ron Howard to deliver mediocrity and to get it in on budget and on time. If you're looking for a workhorse that's going to take an out-of-control production and bring clarity to it, I can see the logic of him. And he was a friend of George. He was offered the
2: directing site for episode one. He thought it was too daunting and possibly he didn't want the Marquand bent over position.
1: He was still licking those wounds from Willow. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that
2: is kind of true. But now George was away so Ron Howard could play. But yeah, Ron Howard coming in here. I'll say all these behind-the-scenes stories did not instill me with confidence for going into this movie. And I talked off air with Stuart and you many times about is this going to be a debacle is this going to be ruinous is this going to be like justice league for crying out loud that mean just a complete mess where you can see the seams
3: i don't consider justice league that at all i think that was another case where it might have been at one point in total tatters but they pulled a competent film together out of that <laughs> i don't
2: know if it's competent <laughs> Yeah, no, it was not fine. And I was worried this would be the same. But I put all that aside and was looking at this movie for what it was. And I can honestly say in my entire life of which I was cognizant. I have never been less excited for a Star Wars film than for Solo, and I can't put my finger on why. I was more excited for 8, for Rogue One. Of course I was excited for all the prequels and Return of the Jedi, but this movie, I don't feel that they've really pushed it with advertising. There hasn't been the tie-ins, there's been very little merchandising. What are you talking about? I'm drinking from a Solo cup right now. (laughs) They do have that. I actually have some. The red cup? The plastic cup? Yes. Yes. (laughs) They put Han Solo on the
1: package. Oh, really? Okay, that's pretty funny. It's the kegger marketing. (laughs) You know, with The Last Jedi, I never got a real vibe for what that movie was. I went into that one kind of ambivalent. This one, I saw the trailer for this, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't look too bad. That looks like a fun romp.
3: Well, my third feeling about why this movie might be in that state, yeah, maybe the bad feelings about Last Jedi, maybe the rumors that this movie is in trouble, but also isn't there just some sentiment that Han Solo was sacred and that they're taking this away from Harrison Ford and giving it to an unknown actor? I happen to know Heinrich, not personally, but I had seen many of his <laughs> films. He's a discovery of Coppola. He was in some very obscure Coppola films from the early 2000s and was quite good in them. And I saw rules don't apply I probably was the only one it was a Warren Beatty movie Hail Caesar he was in a recent Cohen Brothers film Consistently, a really good actor that just needs a big break. And there was something about him that when they said he was cast in this, I said, oh, this could work. But I do wonder, for people that don't know who he is and hear that this unknown is taking something away from Harrison Ford, that probably sits wrong. Unless you got
2: Chris Pratt to just do the Guardians thing again and be stereotyped like that forever, I don't know that there's anyone That would have been an instant appeasement for all fans. I think the people I've talked to are by and large where I am. I don't know this guy. I've never seen this guy. He has taken on a very daunting task. He is stepping into some huge shoes. Let's see what he can do. I think everybody is in the, let's see how it goes kind of mentality. My feeling is he needs to make it his own, but still have what made Han Solo Han Solo. Harrison Ford does not act the same in every movie.
1: No, he does not. Go
2: see Blade Runner, Witness, Empire Strikes Back, and Regarding Henry, back to back. And there's four completely different people in the starring role there.
3: I don't know that there's that much variance.
2: Notice I didn't put Indiana Jones and Han Solo there, because I think they're the same character galaxies away, but I wanted to see what this kid could do. I was open-minded to him. I think we've seen lately, Stuart pointed it out on a previous show, a lot of recasting has happened with younger actors. In many cases, it ends up working where you don't think it can. Chris Pine and Star Trek being a huge one. And I think about that Star Trek reboot a lot, about how you had certain people doing a Spot-on impersonation. Carl Urban doing a direct impersonation of DeForest Kelly as Bones. And Zachary Quinto kind of riding the line. And then Chris Pine doing his own thing. He was not going to be Shatner. So, I think we definitely have Donald Glover doing the Carl Urban here. So... I imagined that Alden was going to do his own thing.
1: I heard they had to give him acting lessons. That that was like one of the most concerning things is that your lead can't act.
2: It's confirmed. There was an acting coach brought on because Lucasfilm was not happy with his performance. But what it was was teaching him to be Han. Yeah. And they said they noticed an almost immediate improvement in his performance once he started working with the coach. You know, It's trying to hit a note he may not have hit before
3: Mm -hmm. as a singer. Right. He may have needed coaching on how to be more like Harrison Ford. That's probably not an easy thing to nail. But this guy, again, I've seen at least five movies where he's always killed it. He's a good actor.
1: So, okay, that makes more sense.
3: Yeah. Rich Little is not a great actor. I mean, mimicry (laughs) is its own skill set. The fact
2: that 70 to 80% of this was reshot, we should have the best performances by
3: him because that would be the end of the shoot. Right. There was reasons to be concerned. I think four films in, I'm not feeling like we've been headed in a new, fertile, creative direction. What I felt like with those first two was they found good characters. They hit similar beats to try and tell people we know how Star Wars works, and we, they found good actors to inhabit those roles. But, yeah, after that last movie, there's reason to be suspicious about the people making choices up top. Understand, a lot of people
2: loved that movie. I mean, it's polarizing. I don't know whether or not that's reason to be concerned. The
1: biggest concern that I relate to that I've seen people express is... What does Star Wars have to offer new? It's like, we're going to fly, we're going to blow up a giant ball that's a battle station. What else can you do? What other story can you tell? It's an entire galaxy, and this goes back to the prequels. A problem with them is that Lucas made that galaxy a lot smaller, but what's new here? How can we expand? And I feel like, oh, we're going to tell an early Han Solo story. He's not a good guy. He's a rogue. He's a criminal. He's a smuggler. So yeah, oh, we could do like a cool heist story or something. At least there, there's something different that we haven't seen in Star. Wars? And can we start finding something new to do in Star Wars?
2: Well, I have read about a hundred Star Wars expanded universe novels before they were all wiped out of continuity like shaking a freaking Etch-A-Sketch.
1: Yeah, they no longer count. <laughs> I have
2: read Han Solo's early adventures- twice now. The first were three really great books by Brian Daly, and they weren't an origin story for Han so much as they were adventures Han and Chewbacca went on in the Falcon before they met Luke. And those were really good books and ended with Han saying, hey, I hear there's a job at of the Huts. So we should go try to get some money that way. Much like this ended. And then A.C. Crispin wrote what's considered the definitive Han Solo trilogy that traces him from childhood through adulthood, ends with him walking into the cantina. And guess what? There's a love of his life. He does jobs with and then things don't work out.
1: All I knew about the expanded universe stuff is that He, at one point, worked for the Empire. He was a pilot or something, and he had some falling out he had to run away from. But again, there's a cool story. Like, you know, we kind of got that with Finn in The Force Awakens, a stormtrooper that becomes a good guy and deserts the Empire. But there's something neat that they could run with. A lot of this comes from
2: George Lucas's mumblings. Lucas says something, and it instantly becomes canonized. Well, I think what Lucas said way back when is the stripe on... Hans Pants was a Corellian bloodstripe, bloodstripe, and that he was kicked out of the Imperial Navy. He was a pilot because he saw Chewbacca being enslaved and rescued Chewbacca from the Imperials, and then they ran off together and became pilot and co-pilot. So I think these are things that were said by Lucas that still have to be honored. And so we'll see a lot of that here. The stuff that has been said about him since 1978 is brought to life in this movie.
3: It's not that different from Marvel. I mean, Marvel has storylines and comics that connect to all of these new movies, and yet they... Pick and choose their best ideas. They're not going to be so beholden to what was done 20, 30 years ago in print as to not go with a great idea that they have. So, yeah, I think you take inspiration and you certainly want to create the impression that Lucas likes what you're doing with his property. But I do think that probably they're not going to read old EU novels and say, we must make it this way. Oh, they read the old EU
2: novels. I'll get to it. But my God, did they read the EU novels?
3: I mean, they're bringing
2: stuff in. Let's not forget the cartoon series, Clone Wars Ended. They did Rebels that takes place actually a few years after this movie. And they brought in some stuff from the old EU and made them canon again, like Grand Admiral Thrawn. So... They're really spidering out and, in my mind, making a little bit confusing this new canon. What's really happened? What hasn't happened? Yeah, I definitely have
3: questions as to when this movie is taking place. Yeah, did the Phantom Menace happen anymore? (laughs) I think it did. We'll talk about it. Now, I did go see this at the
2: fan event Thursday night. They were giving a poster, some buttons, and supposed to be giving out these replica dice that were going to be actually metal and weighty and plated gold well no dice but i did get a poster and some buttons there was no reserve seating so we got there an hour early and the theater's empty save for two other people they got there at three o'clock in the afternoon wow (laughs) so they really thought it was going to be crowded in the end I counted. We were in a small and honestly shitty theater. It was 111 seats. See, I was there for an hour without any cell signal, so I counted the seats, (laughs) and then I counted the people. 18 people in a
3: 111-seat theater. I had a pretty crowded IMAX showing Thursday night. People that were happy to be there, and yet I did notice, in comparison to some opening night event movies, there wasn't as much applause as I would have suspected. There wasn't clapping and all that much laughing. You know, normally you worry about not being able to hear the film because the fan reaction is so over the top. That wasn't a concern.
2: I had trouble hearing the film because the theater I was in was so shitty. The middle speaker, which is the one where all the dialogue comes out of, was broken. So I could barely hear the dialogue unless
1: they were on the side. And I couldn't see anything. Like, everything was so dark. This movie's dark. Okay, thank you. Because I couldn't see anything either. And I'm like, are they under lighting the projector? What is going on? Why can't I see anything here?
2: I had that exact same question. So I went back today to see it in IMAX. And it was not as dark. But it was still very dark and very hard to see for the first half of the
3: film. But the sound was better. See, and I'm going to just put it out there already. I think this is, cinematography-wise, the best-looking Star Wars movie of all time. If you like looking at a blank screen, yeah, I mean... I couldn't see most of the picture. No, it's a (laughs) well-photographed film. It has detail. Yeah, there's blacks in it. That's all there is. Show me some lights.
2: I had trouble in one (laughs) shot. There's a gray ship against a gray sky with a gray landscape. I not colorblind. I have very, very good vision, especially for my age, and I can't find distinction in what's going on. And you didn't have 3D? No, I never saw this in 3D, but it felt like that kind of color muting that 3D glasses would do both times I saw it. I can't even see half the character's faces on Corellia.
1: Okay, good. I felt like, oh, I don't know if I could review this. I couldn't see anything, but it sounds like it's a problem with how it's filmed because this theater has never had that problem before of an underlit show.
2: Yeah, I did go back to the IMAX theater. It was about half full on a Friday afternoon. And I got to admit, I was people watching as much as movie watching to see if there were any reactions because in the crowd of fans at the fan event, there was not a single laugh. There was not a single applause, there was nothing, and there was maybe a little bit of laughter at one point in the half-full IMAX, but that was a pretty sedate experience as well.
1: Yeah, I was in a pretty full theater and no reaction, nothing. No clapping, no laughing. Movie ended, everyone kind of just got up and shuffled their way out. It was weird because, you know, in LA, those crowds like to get into it.
2: The fan event, it always has some extra content. I get to see something nobody else gets to see and that they don't put on the Blu-ray or even YouTube with Thor Ragnarok. I got to see an interview with the composer with Last Jedi. I got to see... An interview with the composer. (laughs) (laughs) What did the composer have
1: to say this time?
3: Yeah, I can't imagine why people aren't shelling out for these fan events.
1: They don't give you your dice and you can (laughs) learn about the score.
3: I put you in the smallest theater.
2: Yeah, bad projection. 25 a ticket. Mm. I did see some behind the scenes stuff with Black Panther and Infinity War. Here, it was Ron Howard. And I'm there taking my notes for the first watching, and I write, Ron Howard. And I put my pen down, and I'm like, well, he's thanking us for coming. I don't need to write that down. He's talking about the great cast and crew he worked with. Just platitude, platitude. I don't need to write that down. He's saying, let's start the movie. What the
3: (laughs) That's what I get? (laughs) That's my bonus footage? It's just fluff from Ron Howard? But let's find out what we think of it.
2: Arnie, why don't you give him a plot? It's a dark time for the galaxy. A few years earlier, Chancellor Palpatine declared himself Emperor, and his Imperial army of troops are creating terror in system after system. But none of that matters to young Han Solo, played by Alden Ehrenreich. Solo, starring Alden, an orphan growing up on the world of Corellia, he's been forced to work as a thief for the evil lady Proxima. But he dreams of getting off the world and becoming a pilot, and he wants to take with him his girlfriend Kira, played by Amelia Clark. Spelled Q I apostrophe R A because K I R A is just too mundane. Eh, they used it in the Dark Crystal. You can't copy that. <laughs> but when Han gets his hands on enough loot to buy his way off world, he and Kira are separated and Han must escape alone. He enrolls in the Imperial Navy. Three years later, he was kicked out of the Navy for insubordination, and now serves as a grunt in the Empire's infantry. But while in battle on the planet Mimban, Han runs into a group of criminals impersonating Imperial officers. Han asks to join them as he wants to get out of the military, but their leader, Tobias Beckett, played by Woody Harrelson, has Solo arrested as a deserter instead. In his cell, Solo meets and teams up with the giant Wookiee Chewbacca, and the two break out. They catch up to Beckett, who takes them into their group, thinking the Wookiee's raw strength will be helpful. The first mission they undertake is to rob some hyperfuel, but the mission is interrupted by a raiding group led by a mysterious masked criminal, Infa's Nest. Only Solo, Beckett, and Chewbacca survive the mission, and they must now answer for their failure to Dryden Voss, a crime lord of the group Crimson Dawn, played by Paul Bettany. Solo and Beckett offer to do another job to deliver the fuel, robbing the mines of Kessel. But to do that, they need a fast ship. So Voss sends along his assistant, Kira, who somehow got off Corellia on her own and joined Crimson Dawn in the past three years. Kira introduces Beckett and Solo to Lando Calrissian, a gambler played by Donald Glover. Using his ship, the Millennium Falcon, they fly to Kessel and steal the fuel, Han escaping by doing the Kessel Run in under 12 parsecs. They go to the planet Savarin to meet Voss, but they're again intercepted by Infa's Nest, who is revealed to be a young woman stealing supplies for the rebellion against the empire. Solo agrees to give her the fuel, but Beckett knows this is a certain death sentence from Voss, so he goes on the run. In fact, he goes straight to Voss and tells him of Han's duplicity. Han and Voss fight, but Kira gets the fatal blow to her boss. During the fight, Beckett took Chewbacca hostage and stole the fuel, so Han chases after them, and in a duel with Beckett, Han shoots first and kills his mentor. But before Han and Kira can be reunited, her ship takes off. Her real goal was to kill Voss and take his position in Crimson Dawn. Now a crime lord herself, answering directly to... Formerly Darth, formerly of two biological legs, now known only as Maul, played by Ray Park. He is the secret head of Crimson Dawn. Alone, Han and Chewie catch back up to Lando and beat him in the card game Sabacc... And now Han is the owner of the Millennium Falcon. He sets course for Tatooine where Beckett told him a gangster is looking for some men to do a job. They jump to hyperspace as credits roll.
1: We start off in Corellia, which is I guess Han's home planet. Is it all just scummy like this? I Know about the Corellian blood stripe because it's just funny to me that the stripe on his pants has a whole backstory in Star Wars lore. <laughs> if you read that lore, it's a much more, it seems like advanced planet, but here, he's like just a street kid, stealing for a gangster.
3: I didn't read the lore, but I did read this opening... It's not even a scroll this time. It's just a couple of intertitles. It's just text that pops up. Yeah. yeah. I feel like they do it only because they know they have to do it. But they-
1: no, they didn't do it, though, with Rogue One. The reason
2: I think we don't have a scroll here is because they didn't do it for Rogue One. And so somebody's there like, oh, we said we weren't going to do scrolls for solo movies. And they're like, listen, we can't spend the time to set up that Han was an orphan in this Oliver Twist-like scenario. You
1: can't set that up. Up. that's the thing they do in movies you could set things up in films without having text at the beginning that is lazy writing to have to have text in the beginning to explain it
2: and who this Lady Proxima is I would have a lot more questions about what's going on without those couple pages of text
1: Oh, I don't even remember the text I couldn't tell you what it said except Ron Corellia
3: yeah it says there's someone named Lady Proxima that takes runaways and puts them in a life of crime and one of them yearns for the stars who could that be? And when we catch him, he's stealing a land speeder. We're gonna jump right
2: into action. I do feel that the Kazdans looked at the original Star Wars movie about how that began with Vader and the stormtroopers coming in, throwing us right in the middle of action when we didn't quite know who was attacking who and why. Here, Han's on the run in a land speeder. We're not sure why he's running. All we know is in the middle of a crisis,
3: he's going to put gold dice on the dash. And the camera's got to tilt up and show us a triangle ship. They still keep two formula. I don't remember dice being a thing in the original, but... You saw The Last Jedi twice. That was a big deal in The Last Jedi, those dice. It was.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah, that the whole thing. Mark Hamill gives him to Carrie Fisher. Remember Han? Here's those dice he loved to hang from the rearview mirror of the Millennium Falcon.
3: I feel like we get more about these dice in the first five minutes of this movie than we do in the entire Star Wars saga prior.
2: The dice thing in the original A New Hope, Lucas put some dice there to kind of be like the space version of fuzzy dice and thought it would be funny because it was supposed to be like a hot rod. And now with episode eight and now this, it has become more prominent than you could ever imagine.
1: Yeah, I never noticed those dice until I think the DVDs came out and that picture was cleaned up and brightened. I'm like, oh, look at those weird dice. I don't know if they show up in any of the other Star Wars films until The Last Jedi. I only saw them in that first A New Hope. It's like, oh, we're going to take all the smallest little things and this is a prequel, so we're going to explain where they come from. This is the annoying thing with prequels. Just tell a story. I don't need to know the backstory of every prop. That's why a Carillion stripe is so funny to me because you don't need an explanation for a stripe on your pants.
2: But we never find out the origin of the dice. It's not like they were in the speeder when he stole it. That would actually give us that origin.
3: For as much as this movie plums the original trilogy for minutia. I don't think we learn a whole lot about Han. They do a lot to confirm how he got the things we already knew he had in those movies, but we find out nothing about him beyond what the other movies would infer.
1: Yeah, part of the problem is this is a prequel and we know Han's story, so we can't do anything radically different because his character has been set. So I don't know how much they can tell with him character-wise. We're going to hear all that history we heard in the Star Wars films. They're going to jam it all into this film. Kessel Runs and Dropping Shipments and Meeting Chewbacca. We're going to just jam it all into this
3: film. But the character, I don't know if we
1: learn anything about him.
3: I don't even know that I know anything about him in the past, other than these details. You say his story's locked in stone. I don't know his story. And at the end of this movie, I still don't know his story.
1: I'm saying his character, that roguish charm. What's his character arc here? I definitely see a character arc. It's his
2: becoming streetwise. He was initially very naive. This is him getting his cynical attitude. This is where he learned it. But I am at a point right now where I am just feeling done with prequels, done with yes. going back and <laughs> telling an origin story, because I realized we had three movies of doing that with Darth Vader. And what did we really learn other than he pod raced? He doesn't like sand. And that he had a secret love affair. We learned more about what the Jedi allow him to do than we did about him. He hit the beats we expected him to hit and Here we are with Han and again, they could be surprising. They could pervert expectations and give us something truly shocking. And instead we get him doing the exact same things that we expect for him to do.
1: The fact that we're gonna learn that his last name isn't really Solo, that we gotta have an origin for Solo. I don't need that. It's a silly last name, but that's his last name. Why do we need an origin story for it?
3: I mean, no one comes from nothing. Who are these parents that he keeps denying he has no connection to? We'll never find out. They signed this actor for three movies, and he
2: does talk about how he's not close to his father, but never knew his mother. They're
1: leaving hooks for future movies. Oh yeah, the Darth Maul's coming back.
3: I thought they were covering their ass, because this whole thing is about him learning to fly, but he never gets the chance to even test one out. How would he know how to fly by the time he's jumping in the seat? They have one line for him to say, my father was a pilot. And how does he know what his father did if he supposedly this runaway
2: orphan who's been living with Lady Proxima for most of his life.
3: Well, obviously, there's more there to be told, and my rule is, is if you're gonna give us the prequel, that we learn this now. You're not gonna meet this out over a trilogy or six films or what have you. That's what this film is here to do.
1: Yeah, I thought this film, there's a line that comes a little bit later, what's the difference between a tribe and a family? And I'm like, okay, there's the subtext for this film. It's gonna be Han Solo alone learned to accept other people and have a family even though they're not biological. Nope, there's no subtext in this film. There's nothing about that. It's just, here's a guy that's gonna fly the Millennium Falcon through some
3: clouds. I'm actually gonna bet that that was the theme. And then the script guy got it.
1: Yeah, where is it, though, in this film?
3: (laughs) I mean, think about Lego Batman, and that was about Batman realizing that he needed his Bat family. I'm sure that they were planning something similar. My mysticism was, if you're making a legitimate prequel to the work that Lucas and Harrison Ford did, I don't know why you would bring goofs into the room until... I see the scene of him standing before Proxima and holding up a rock and doing beatboxing to make it seem like a thermal device, and it just clicks for me. They're chasing Guardians of the Galaxy. They want him to be Star-Lord so bad, he even calls himself an outlaw. Now it makes total sense. Star Wars is old and fuddy-duddy, and this new thing came along and got all the kids excited, and they have to keep up. This is the trends. We see this all the time in James Bond, by the way. James Bond has to go to outer space. James Bond has to rap. He has to do whatever the kids are doing in order to stay relevant. And that's what's happened. If you're making a, an origin story for Han Solo and he's played by a young person, then he needs to emulate the movies that young people like today.
1: But if you're going to do a story about a, a roguish anti hero like what Harrison Ford played, I don't know if I want them to copy Star Lord, but I don't necessarily have a problem with this tone. Like when get the reveal of Lady Proxima, and it's this weird worm that comes out of the water. I'm like, ooh, this is strange. I kind of like how bizarre this all is. But yeah, he's going to make noises and pretend to have a thermal detonator. I don't think that's the wrong avenue. If you're going to have a more jokey Star Wars, Han Solo might be the character to try to pull that off with.
2: And here is the first of an endless number of references and callbacks that to other Star Wars.
1: (laughs) There's so many.
2: That he's going to say, I'm holding a thermal detonator and use it to try to ransom the giant slug. Because Lady Proxima is like this underwater vampire caterpillar thing. It looks like Layer of the White Worm meets Fright Night. But he's going to do exactly what Leia did. What Leia did with Jabba? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. If I had a quarter for every reference and every callback in this movie, I could retire today.
1: And there's a moment with Woody Harrelson in the costume he wears where I just threw my arms at him. I'm like, I'm done. Does it all have to be callbacks to stuff that's going to happen in the future?
2: Wait,
3: wait, wait, wait. What's going on? Because I was saying all of this last week and you guys told me I was crazy for being mad at Deadpool for referencing his great mythology. But I think it's different with Star Wars. You guys need to own up to the fact that this is more precious to you. And that when people start mining it for fan service, you don't feel served. You get angry.
1: No, no, here's the thing. With Deadpool, that was about characters and keeping those characters consistent. Here, it's just, hey, we got these other films and let's remind you of that stuff. Let's mine that and just bring up stuff that doesn't need to be brought up. Deadpool making jokes. That's what he did in the first one. He's going to make jokes again here that we're going to have a thermal detonator in front of a slug just like Princess Leia did with Jabba the Hutt. Can we do
3: something new? Well, I think today's humor is referential. And I do think this was conceived as being Guardians-like and full of pop culture jokes. I think that if you had the original directors directing at their rat-a-tat pace something that you would expect in a Lego movie vibe... All of this would be playing with that energy. What's strange about it is that they tamp the comedy down so flat that it just feels like any old Star Wars movie, which leaves you with a comedy with all the jokes broken on the ground. And the fact that we're not in on the joke. We don't see what's in his hand. We can barely see a
2: damn thing on the screen. (laughs) So it's not until Lady Proxima goes, it's a rock. that we know he's bluffing and she knows from the beginning. Here's the other problem I have. And it's specifically with the first third of the movie. The beginning feels chopped up. I don't know if the 80% that was reshot was reshot after he hooks up with Woody Harrelson and Lando Calrissian, but from the very first opening of that race through the train heist, I'm thinking this is a jumbled mess that I can't follow. And then it finds its groove and it really smooths out, but I have a real serious having seen it twice, editing slash pacing slash storytelling problem with the first third.
1: It's because they gotta fit all that mythology into this one single film.
3: You cannot underestimate what happened by removing those directors. I don't care what they're saying. This was not going to be the same script. They had different ideas about what was going to happen and they were riffing and improvising and bringing all of that up for humorous effect, the kind of humor that makes every Everyone laugh in Deadpool and Guardians and Legos movies, and then Ron Howard comes in, and the editors come in and they say, No, we need to make this feel more like a Lucas film.
1: No one's laughing. And I gotta ask, when did they get the acting coach for Aaron Wright? Because I feel like so much of this film, again, talking about we gotta tamp it all down, is they showed him that scene from A New Hope when Luke and Han they shoot up the detention center and then like they call, What's going on up there? And Han's like, everything's fine, it's okay, how are you? And I feel like, watch that scene over and over and just do that cadence for the entire film. I get that they want this... Actor to remind us of Harrison Ford, but I feel like okay, do a couple lines that get us to buy in and then let him just do his thing. Same with Donald Glover, we'll talk about that how he does Lando, but I feel like no, we gotta have it just like Harrison Ford did, and uh, it just kind of seems unnatural now. And I kind of wish they just let this breathe and let the actors do their
3: thing. I don't know how much room you have to do your own thing when you're following in the footsteps of an icon. To me, Aaron Reich actually doesn't go overboard with mimicry. I do think, like, Lando, he's obviously, I'm just doing Billy D. Williams. I would say this actor understands what the character is going to end up being and trying to hint at that, but is not doing it to the same degree that the rest of the movie is. The rest of the movie is overselling, hey, we're tied to this mythos you love, this actor. I feel like he is trying to find his own space and making the character his own. He never clicks with me as Han Solo. He is fine in the role,
2: but it's not a Han Solo performance beginning to end. I really get annoyed with his squinty smile. There's just something about it that I'm like, you're not Han. But you know what he does remind me of? I'm reminded of River Phoenix and also Sean Patrick Flannery. Those are two who had to be Harrison Ford at a younger age before. And I think Phoenix did it better than Reich, and I think Flannery did it about as well as Aaron Reich. But it's an unenviable position, I've already said. It feels like he's impersonating River Phoenix more than he's impersonating Harrison Ford.
3: And again, I'm saying I don't think he's impersonating anybody. I think he's trying to give a performance. If you're not getting enough out of him, it's because we're not having enough details about what's going on here. There's a worm that's mad at him, and so they're going on the run because they stole this vial of fuel. That's all we really know. I suspect that this was a radically different film and they simplified it and said, what in all this improvisation can we boil down to its essence and keep? Because the movie will later find a footing that is much more firm. If this feels like a jumble and confusion, it's because they had to cut a whole lot of stuff out just to give us stuff that's going to matter later
1: yeah, we'll get a whole chase and end up at, I guess, is the equivalent of an airport terminal. And I don't understand any of this. It's like, <laughs> you got to have, I don't know, a registration ship or something to get aboard a ship.
2: What we're going to find out is Han was sent to steal something for Lady Proxima. He got in a fight, stole their car, but he stole this vial of fuel. Then he's being chased by this guy, Mola.
1: He's the big Fortuna for Lady Proxima and goes chasing him to get that fuel. Or are they just mad that he threw the rock and... And she got a sunburn.
3: Yeah, he's there at the lagoon when the window gets broken and the sunlight comes in. And I think that that's why he continues to pursue with these dogs or whatever. Again, I like the visual look of this movie. I think that these Lance Beater chases are better than Moat. I wish I could see things
2: better. And, hey, a couple more callbacks are going to happen here. A biker scout is going to take off after Han Solo and then crash, just like every biker scout in Return of the Jedi did. Are you guys not having a good time? I'm not at the beginning.
1: This action just doesn't seem kinetic enough. You know, someone took the trailer and put, like, Beastie Boys sabotage to it. I wish it had something like that, like something that just got me into this film and like, oh, this is exciting and pulse racing. Instead, it's just like, oh, it's a chase and nothing really exciting is going on.
3: Well, imagine if you had to make Guardians, but cut out everything where Chris Pratt is funny because we want this to feel Lucas. And so that to me, I'm not blaming performance. I'm not blaming really anything other than they had a different vision. And then someone had to come in and say, get rid of that as much as you can.
2: I don't care the reason why. I don't care the impetus for it. I think it's a mixture of all of the above. I can't see what's on the screen both times I see it when we're on Corelli. It's too damn dark. On the second time, I did get to see they go through a shipyard where they're building a Star Destroyer, and that was a little bit cool, seeing, like, the parts of it scattered around, but I can't see. I don't know who's chasing who and for why. I'm... The first time I watched this, gripping with fingernails to follow the story, all I know is they're setting up. Han was a thief. He's got this girlfriend, Kira. It's Amelia Clark. She's a brunette now. I get their relationship for some very passionate closed mouth kisses where they look like they're just smushing faces together and They're on the run together, and I like this. I knew from the trailer she would not go with him. And then, yeah, I think they just end up going to customs, right? Or, you know, uh,
3: immigration to go in and out of the country. TSA, yeah, I mean, someone's at a checkpoint.
1: I I think part of the problem is, does Ron Howard do action? Because... Lucas, that pod race in episode one is pretty exciting. And here we get a chase and it's just not very exciting in this terminal.
3: I agree with you guys. Things are choppy. I don't think I can't see things because of the visual look of the film. It's because of the editing. And sometimes they just don't have coverage. What I'm weirded out about, what I think they're trying to convey is that the Empire is really brutal to everyday people. That we see families being ripped apart here. They can be very draconian about who gets to go beyond the borders of what they can. Tra- I wish we had more time to let that breathe. And my guess is that wasn't a concern at all for the original filmmakers. They were trying to make jokes. They were trying to make it funny. Why would you stop and have these dramatic emotional moments? And so consequently, they're not setting up what needs to be set up here, which is that the Empire is bad and these two need to get out from under it. But the Empire is barely going to be a presence in this movie. And yeah, there are
2: random acts of cruelty here where they're just pulling children away from parents for no discernible reason whatsoever. I honestly think it's supposed to evoke memories of Auschwitz
3: without any reasoning of why. And it's topical in America right now as well with immigration policy changes.
1: Yeah, but again, I feel like this is a pretty subtextless film. Like, you might have things with ideas that another director or writer would have done something with. It just doesn't happen here like this is just so bizarre that we're gonna pull out some space gas and bribe an officer to let us on a spaceship
2: i don't think it's that bad i was with that in that there's corruption everywhere in the empire she's corrupt i was more confused because i thought it was denise crosby behind there but i don't understand why not Denise Crosby closes the gate after only one of them gets through. They
1: grab Kira and then she just closes the gate. Because I don't understand what this space terminal is all about, nothing's making sense. It's just people chasing each other.
3: I thought it was pretty cut and dry. I thought it had been designed to give you a very simple idea. Two lovers on the run think they're going to get away from their evil guardian, and they have this one vial that's like the currency of now, and they pay off the guard, but just as they're about to leave, the henchman catches up. Although, I don't think it's Moloch that grabs her. No, but it was the guy who had the hounds. They had some hounds that they were
2: sending after, and the hounds were there too.
1: When the screen's all black, they all look the same.
2: That is true. It is hard to see, but I could tell they looked like Cenobites, the little hounds, because they had the big teeth and things. They kind of looked like Chatterer, only they weren't chattering. But, Stuart, I get exactly what you're saying. I know what this movie is trying to tell me. What it's not giving me is any characterization to care why it's telling me.
3: Yeah, what you want from a good director, in a strong directorial vision, you set a tone from the start that's going to grow and change with the characters as we go on. And here at the beginning, we understand who the characters are. It's a romance broken up and now the guy's going to do whatever he can to get back to his girl. But so many things in the background are cut away or diffused in a way that makes you feel like we're having the story hidden from us. And that is a frustrating feeling especially when he just runs directly to the Imperial recruitment
2: and he has no ID he has nothing and the recruiter there isn't more than happy
3: to forge an identity for him. They're so desperate for troops. Everything about this character is defined of, I'm going to be a pilot. He signs up saying, great, I'm going to finally fly. I don't care who I fly for. I'm apolitical. And he ends up as an infantryman on the ground, in the mud. For three years, he is just crawling through mud. There's one joke
2: here, and it is so poorly told. It's like a four-year-old trying to repeat a stand-up comic, because the Guy gives him his identity and says, we'll have you flying in no time. And then it says three years later and he's flying through the air. I got the no time the first time that no time means he's still not flying three years later. I didn't catch that that's a big joke. We'll have you flying and now he's flung through the air.
3: You would get it if this were done Legos, though. Again, these feel like jokes that were in that Lego Batman. If the pace were quick and there was just a lot of silliness, we would see that as another pratfall. I think I will also go back to blaming the editors. Again, maybe they didn't have enough
2: to work with. But the other thing is, I think editing for jokes is like having the same kind of comedic timing to tell a joke. And if you're not somebody who's used to editing for comedy, just the mere amount of time between the beats can make or break a joke. And I think it broke that joke here. And the planet Mimban, actually, where Han was at the war... Is from Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and it's one of Lucas's own concepts for a sequel. And then I'm confused because I thought the Empire's infantry was stormtroopers. Who are these grunts? Yes.
1: (laughs) Which, you know what? I'm trying to be easy on some things. Okay, the Empire's big. Maybe they don't have stormtrooper armor for everyone. That's just for those around the Emperor. Who knows? I'm okay with grunts. I'm wondering why Woody Harrelson and that group is going to be there just to steal a ship. They're on a job,
2: and the job went bad because they thought the plan and it was going to be quiet and they ended up in the middle of a war and so their next thing was we need to get the hell off this planet by stealing a ship
3: yeah but we it would have been helpful and I'm sure in one version uh, we knew what the job was and it would have mattered and there would have been more about that but they've cut all of that out because they didn't want that vibe whatever was happening in all of that and I'm guessing it's really a manic comedy vibe the editors get rid of that vibe so with its removal we feel something has been husked you know the shell is there, but we don't understand what's going on.
1: Yeah, this is basically a heist film, which is kind of exciting, you know. And part of a heist film, yeah, you want to feel like maybe you don't care about the MacGuffin, but you want to feel the mechanics and who these characters are, these criminals, like you want to get into that. And the fact that Woody and his gang just shows up and I don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. There's no backstories. It's weird if this is going to be a heist film. I want to buy into, oh, these are criminals that I want to get invested in and watch their story.
2: Uh, The characters around... Woody are so underserved that it's sad. One of my favorite characters in the film is Rio Durant, the four-armed pilot voiced and played by John Favreau. I really like this guy's sense of humor, the way he's like, you know, this kid could be helpful. Let's just take him along. I really like that character. He's gonna die. Tandy Newton. I have loved Tandy Newton since Mission Impossible 2. And here she is. I don't think you cast Tandy Newton for a nothing role. I guess you do. I mean, she's basically a cameo and I again blame multiple visions. They had to have more to do.
3: I believe that we actually see it once we get off of this war thing. That the Rewriting and the refilming that happened was after this point. Everything prior to that was stuff that the original directors had done, and it was probably complicated with lots of jokes and subplots. That are gone here. The only thing that remains is they know they need to introduce us to Chewie. And I think this is absolutely how you want to see these two besties introduced. Trying to kill each other, chained in a muddy pit, going at it. This seems like the right thing to do.
1: I don't mind this, how they meet up. It's a little weird that Han's like busting out some Kashyyyk with his chirps and growls, but okay, I'm fine with this. I like this scene. I think it's a callback to the Rancor that we're
2: throwing somebody down in a pit. Exactly. And (laughs) I knew it was Chewbacca as soon as they say the monster I'm like okay it's Chewbacca they try to hide it from us they try to have shadows in the it's already dark so you have darkness in dark yeah the screen is black again <laughs> but yet they show the tendrils of hair. I know it's Chewbacca. That doesn't ruin it for me. And then they've got two stormtroopers who I actually enjoy up top cheering for the Wookiee to
3: eat Han. My reference is The Defiant Ones. It's a 50s movie about two unlikely people that end up getting out of a chain gang and having to work together. And that would have been fun to play with for a while. Here it's just a bit with these guys chained at the ankle, one running one way, one running the other way, and then getting picked up by Woody and the Marauders. But when they
2: get off the planet, based upon our conversation, I now wonder if my cut had an error, like my print was bad. Did you guys have a scene of Han and Chewie naked together in a shower? Because that seems like something they might have wanted in the previous funny cut of the film that somebody accidentally
3: left in in Final Cut Pro or something. Well, I don't think they want this movie to not be funny. They just don't want it to be a farce or airplane, mile a minute jokes. But that's not funny.
1: Oh, it's the one scene that got a laugh in the theater I was in.
3: I just
2: find it awkward and (laughs) off-putting. And then they're immediately to a job. they are got to steal some fuel from a train. It's going to be a train heist. I'm excited because I love Ocean's Eleven. You give me a good heist film like Logan Lucky, I'm down for it. And so I wonder if we're going to have a lot of planning. We see them using the macro binoculars to plan what they're going to do. And then they just have this little bit of a dinner where... Woody is going to spend the movie dispensing little fortune cookies of wisdom and it starts here about not having too much attachment and we find out that he and Val are a couple though, that even he needed somebody there. I didn't expect that from them.
3: Yeah, I think the movie gets much better from this point on. I like the idea that we're going to have a train robbery. It's very old-fashioned. Star Wars has always pulled from old movies, old genres, and just the early 20th century. If you think about the war and it being influenced by World War One and World War Two, train robberies and westerns and that kind of vibe, it's right to bring that in here. And I do enjoy the scene.
1: I'm down for the heist, down for the robbery. It's just I never feel that adrenaline pumping. This should be exciting. They're holding to this. This train does this cool, like, curvy thing as it goes around the track, and it's just there. You know, in Breaking Bad, they do a train heist to get the chemical that used to make meth, and that's just two people robbing a train, and it's super exciting here. It's just oh, uh, yeah, there's some flying stuff and some shooting, but as a heist film, it doesn't work it's just like, oh, we're going to detach the train and lift it up with our ship. I want that planning. I want, you know, those schematics and really getting invested in them accomplishing this mission.
2: I agree. I'm still feeling like I'm on the train. Like I'm on this super bullet train that is just not giving me a chance to breathe. Even though we had one scene where I get to like John Favreau, which is the only scene he'll ever have because I should have realized that the buzzards were circling. I really thought this would be this crazy crew working together the rest of the movie. I thought we were going to have Mission Impossible here, and these were our people. I didn't realize we were having Mission Impossible 1, where we're going to kill off most of the people in the opening scenes, and then have
3: Ethan on the run. Well, you gotta kill Rio, and I agree. He's a colorful, enjoyable little character, but you gotta kill him because it gives Han the chance to finally be behind the wheel and be a pilot. Again, that is the guiding light to everything that he is doing, is I have got to be a pilot, I want to fly, and so they already have a pilot, they don't need him, except now that pilot has been shot by some of the people guarding the train. And so Han has to leave Chewie to decable the rest of the car while he goes up there and flies the ship. Seems like a poor planned job. I like the
2: energy of it. I like how the train tilts. I like the Viper droids that are waiting. They're probe droids, basically, that are heavily armed. So we've always thought probe droids could kick some ass, and now we're finally getting a chance to see some of that in a movie. I'm enjoying this. The mechanics of it all, though, there seem to be not a lot of people on the train. There's a few furry stormtroopers on the train, but they're not around for very long. They have this place mostly to themselves, and they still can't get that train off.
1: Well, some pirates do come in and try to steal the shipment from them.
3: Yeah, I, again, I think there's all kinds of elements that are kind of fun here. What I'm wondering is, because this is funny and it is like old Lucasy, the way George Lucas would have shot it if he were still in charge, that's just not good enough by today's standards, right? After Guardians, we demand more. We demand more boorish characters, just more in your face. Because this movie is going at Six instead of 11, that may be why it feels underwhelming.
1: I think six is a little high and you keep bringing up guardians. I don't need guardians. I go back to Rogue One. There are just types of characters, the blind swordsman and his friend with a big heavy machine gun and a sarcastic robot. Those are very simple types, but they're popular types and I could get into those characters and enjoy them. And I don't feel like I'm watching a Guardians film with Rogue One. Here, who are these characters? They all seem flat. Yeah, you got a four-armed alien. He's got some charm to him, I guess, because it's Jon Favreau doing the voice. But these characters, I'm not into them at this point
2: and you're not going to need to be because Val's going <laughs> to sacrifice
3: herself why do they need to blow up the bridge I don't know <laughs> I think it is, in order to get lift off, in order for the ship to be able to take it away, the way I take it is that it has to be airborne. It's helping this uncoupled car full of the hyperfuel to just immediately get off, be out, and then the ship can take it. It's not strong enough to lift it, but it's strong enough to hold it once it's airborne.
1: I guess that's how you pull it off the rail.
3: Yeah, maybe. I'll go with it. I just, is
2: the score worth Val killing herself? I mean, was her life not very good anyway? (laughs) That to make sure that that blows up at that point, she could have hopped the train. They could have done something different, but no, she's going to kill herself
3: and it's not even going to get her boyfriend, the booty, because Enfa's nest is going to roll in. I'm going to make a prediction, because I know for a fact it's true for some of the characters. Dandy Newton was available for a certain amount of time, and when this went into overtime, she said, I gotta go film Westworld. And so they had to kill her here. It makes no sense narratively to take her out at this point. You absolutely need to have her here to teach young Han about love, because the relationship she has with Woody is going to be in some way one that can be mirrored with Han when he reconnects with Kira. Obviously she needed to be in the rest of the film. I love Thandie Newton. She should be in the film but I'm guessing she just was not available. They already had this footage. They weren't going to cut her out of the film, (laughs) and so this is the uh, thankless goodbye. They did cut some people out,
1: yes. I do feel like Beckett, who we keep calling by the actor's name Woody, he should be more contentious with Han. You know, his girlfriend or wife, lover, whatever, sacrifices herself, and then Han just dumps the shipment, because that's apparently what Han does all the time, is dump the shipments, and so they don't get anything out of this. She sacrificed herself for nothing. It feels like if that was the intent of the original script there'd be more tension between those characters
2: this is to me a character defining moment for Han he's choosing the people over the loot we just saw Val choose the loot over herself Han knows they're gonna crash or at least he thinks there's a very good chance of it if Enfa's team would let go because Enfa here is looking pretty murderous like she's willing to let Beckett and Chewbacca die because they're hanging onto this train car if they don't release their clamps and let Enfa have it and it turns out Enfa's swoop bikes there can't even hold it they're not strong enough once they let go it's a game of chicken between Beckett and Enfis, who will let go first Han is going to put the people above the job time and time again and I guess that's a character trait because he even puts the people above the job at the end of episode 4 that we thought was a big character That's going to be what he does again and again, as he seems to care about himself, but cares about others. He's going to sacrifice the shipment to save Beckett and Chewbacca.
3: I thought a pretty good action scene. Cool explosion. I liked all of it. I recognize it's not the most exciting scene ever. It just helped give this movie life. Up to this point, I felt like it was disorganized. And at this point, I feel like I'm getting into the groove. And sadly, liking some of the characters that will no longer be participating (laughs) in the rest of the film.
1: Once we get to this train heist, I do feel like, okay, I'm getting more into this plot. I could understand it more instead of all the cutting and weirdness that was going on for the first 20 minutes or so. You're right, Stuart. Yeah, at this point, even though I'm not that excited by it, at least it feels more coherent.
2: All the way, including through the train heist, when Enfas first shows up and does her thing or his thing i guess we're supposed to think it's a him at this point still lost still like what's going on everybody's popping into the screen now characters are dying before i get to know them but that once the train job is over once it's down to beckett chewbacca and han and beckett is explaining to han this job was really important we weren't stealing for ourselves we were stealing for crimson dawn and they're going to have me killed all of a sudden What was pretty firmly a red arrow is going to turn into a green arrow because this film catches its footing. It slows down. It lets people have characters. The moment we get in with Crimson Dawn, this movie is a good movie.
1: Is Crimson Dawn a thing in the Expanded Universe? It feels like that was something that the fans would know that read all the books. There's
2: so many Crimson's. There's Crimson Sun. There's Crimson Empire. Yeah, Crimson Empire
1: I've heard of. Okay.
2: But Crimson Dawn was created for this movie and has only existed in this movie and a couple of like spin-off books already from this movie.
3: I'm agreeing with you totally. I I think it happens a little bit earlier with the train heist. But at this point, I feel like Ron Howard taking the reins. I'm just going to go ahead and say, whatever was originally being done, we're no longer doing any of that anymore. And they can now follow... Of course, that Ron Howard is comfortable and Kathleen Kennedy is comfortable pursuing from this point on. Love it or hate it, I feel like the movie is more
2: unified. 100%. We get characters who have development. We get mysteries that have payoff. It's almost like they should have taken the entire first 40 minutes if they hadn't spent so much money on action scenes and put that as part of the blue text at the start.
3: Yeah, and it meant someone else couldn't come back. It was supposed to be Michael K. Williams. Omar is coming from The Wire, who was going to be Dryden Voss. Would have been a lot more sense. I mean, that's a guy that can be very imposing. Paul Bettany does not come across as a heavy. They have to give him some like scars or something on his face. They're trying whatever they can. He's a friend of Ron Howard that could sub at the last minute. Yeah, he actually texted Ron and was like, I'd like to be in the Star
2: Wars film. (laughs) And I like Paul Bettany in this. I like the charming crime lord. I like that he's a dichotomy. I do find this joke slightly amusing when... They're like, oh, he's meeting with the governor. I'm like, oh, an imperial governor. We haven't seen one of those in a while. And we cut to him removing the blade from the governor's belly. I thought that tells us everything we need to know. And the way he says, I might need this knife later. And he has a cool knife in a movie where we can't have a lightsaber, except for one gratuitous needless shot later at the end. To have... A blade that's a knife with just a little bit of lightsaber on
3: it, so we can cut through everything. I thought was pretty awesome. Really, it looks like a food processor blade. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like it was pretty obvious when there's a sword fight later that he is underserved by this short ass knife.
1: Yeah, but I do like as someone that's into the Star Wars universe. He's got all these like shrunken heads and stuff in the background. I'm like, does he have a Rodian head? What are those heads back there? And he's got some Mandalore armor.
3: That's the crystal skull. I think they're they're punking us. This is a subtle Jedi mind trick to say, oh, you want Lucas back. Only Lucas can make Star Wars (laughs) and franchise films. Just remember what Lucas did in Crystal Skull and shut your ass up.
2: They even blow it up later in the movie. I do think it was a Crystal skull.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that.
2: Or maybe it's you want Harrison Ford. Have you seen what Harrison (laughs) Ford did lately?
3: (laughs) It works in both capacities. Whether you're one of those people that are screaming Harrison Ford or George Lucas, it's a reminder that everyone is fallible, and there have been missteps in the Star Wars and Indiana Jones franchises. I thought it was funny. Yeah, and the
2: Mando armor. I at first thought it was an actual Mandalorian. I had a feeling we'd see Boba Fett in this movie. they were going to make the Boba Fett movie. Boba Fett and Han have a history like Lando and Han do.
3: I'm going to say favorite Star Wars song. Sorry, Cantina band. But actually, this chantous that's performing with like a head in a jar. This is a funky groove. I actually want this song. I
2: don't like this song. I don't like Space Rihanna there. And I did like whatever was singing in the jar, though. I thought he was amusing.
3: This is a good scene, and again, I have no idea other than we just need to make it happen, why Kira is here. It's awfully convenient that she just magically wound up here. It's the last gimme I'm going to give this film to just say they're trying to move on from a disastrous opening, but here it just feels weird and convenient that she now works for Paul Bettany. I could go back to last week's Deadpool and
2: have Ryan Reynolds break the fourth wall and just say, well, that's lazy writing,
1: but (laughs) Yep, (laughs) I was thinking that throughout.
2: (laughs) It is the last gimme the movie needs. At that point, I think from this point on, I'll go with just about everything that happens. But yeah, her being there is quite a coink and unfortunately, I feel they've hedged their bets how she got there and what she's done. She's like, I've had to do things you wouldn't
3: understand.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, oh, you're a space whore. You're branded.
2: That's what Marjorie thought, too. Is she was a space whore.
3: She is Dryden's girl. We don't know to what extent, but she's got a tattoo on her arm. She's got a piece of jewelry that matches his insignia ring. To whatever degree, she has bought into this lifestyle and she's pretty cool. it's pretty notable honda's still a little bit dazed like oh my god you're still here she's not putting that out there she's not like oh i'm so glad you're here we can continue our plan of running away from the empire
2: i have my own theory of what she did and maybe they've explored it in the comics i haven't kept up with all the expanded universe stuff i still have some stephen king and hellraiser to read but i feel when he says how did you get out she says i didn't And so what I read that as is maybe she ran Lady Proxima's thing, like maybe she killed Lady Proxima and ran that and then got bought out, like small companies by large companies got bought out by Crimson Dawn.
3: I do feel like we should have understood it by the end of the film. We'll understand something. We know she made a deal with the Red Devil, but like a lot of things here, I come away not knowing a whole lot more about her other than, yeah, she did what it took to wind up in this lap of luxury, and now she's going to back Han when Han pitches Dryden on the idea that they can just supply all of that fuel that exploded on the mountain, they can just get it in unprocessed, unrefined form at Kessel. Kira, working for Voss
2: was very telegraphed. This does feel a little bit James Bond. We're kind of in the lap of luxury. There's a big party. There's your smiling bad guy who will kill
3: you, and the femme fatale on his arm. Yeah, I, I saw a little Bond here. And she's got the connections to help them. That Because she's being tasked to go with Han, they've got to figure it out, Beckett. Han and Chewie, she's going to go and she's got a lead on a really good ship.
1: Yeah, they're gonna come up with this whole idea where you gotta get a ship so we could get the unrefined stuff and then we gotta get it refined. We're not gonna go to Scarif! Hey guys, remember Scarif? That was in Rogue One. But as a heist film this isn't a great way to lay out your like plan. I, again, going back to the Ocean films or even Mission Impossible where there's just all this style about here's how we're gonna do it. That's what's interesting is you gotta show us the plan and then when it all goes wrong and they gotta improvise, that's the 10 that's what gets you invested and in what's going on here. They just rattle off a lot of stuff. I'm like, okay, something about fuel and they're going to have to refine it and they got to get a ship. Okay, here we go.
3: And sometimes that's true of any... Heist film is we don't really understand what the plan is until they're actually doing it.
1: But they do a sleight of hand. They kind of go, oh, this is what we're going to do. And of course, it's always going to change. And again, that's the excitement is that, oh, something went wrong or they didn't tell us everything and someone's got a plan of their own.
3: And I think we have that here. I mean, I think I believe Woody Harrelson's character When he's saying, you really shouldn't trust Kira. I think she has her own agenda. She is projecting that. She's not doing a very good job of hiding the fact that she's not going to run off with Han. It's Han that's deluded at thinking that they can go back to the way it was.
1: Han is awful at reading body language. I'm like, don't trust anything she's saying. Like, she's not interested. Obviously, something's going on. She's not returning that affection. This guy's got to learn some social skills.
2: Amelia Clark is a name because of Game of Thrones. She's very good in Game of Thrones. But between Terminator Genesis and now, I've watched a lot of Game of Thrones and I really think she's good. But I feel she in both Terminator Genesis and here is miscast. This is not what she does. This is never right for her. I don't like her performance here or how she's playing Kira because I do feel it's always a bit. Off-putting. And if she's really going to be this hard ass who's going to answer to Maul, she needs to play Han a little more or something. I don't like how she treats this movie.
3: Agreed. And I don't know if she's a comedic actress and could have been funny in a Lego movie kind of way. My guess is they would have used her as the straight man and that Han and Chewie and everyone else would be playing bits off of her and she would be frowning. She seems perpetually unhappy is, is what I'm getting out of her. And again, she has her own agenda. I'm looking at her askance and thinking this will go south because of her. But the mission, Han is the one who comes up with it, is like, Voss is going to kill
2: Beckett for sure, and maybe Han and Chewie just for fun, but Han says, what if we can get you that same amount of fuel from someplace else? And we're getting teased here. Voss is like, you know who I report to. I'm, I don't- I, I thought, thought it was, was Jabba.
3: Yes. Yeah, yeah, and she'll later say everyone has a boss. Yeah, they're
1: gonna call out or sing. They're gonna call out Bosk in this film. Like, yeah, I really thought, oh, here's another old trilogy character that we're gonna bring up.
2: Everything is a reference. Everything, including Lando, who's going to be gambling while talking about his adventures in Ocean or in Van Boka or in the Star Cave. There were three Lando Calrissian novels that came out, like there were three Han Solo novels. The Star Cave of Thonboka, Boca, The Flame Wind of Ocean. He's referencing them here. They are making references to these L. Neil Smith 1983 novels. Too deep, Arnie. Too deep. I, no. <laughs>
1: You you know what I did appreciate, because I haven't read those books, but I do love that Lando has always called Han Han.
3: I got that one. I was proud of it. Like, yeah, it came up in a conversation before. I needed to have been on this show in order to get a lot of the banter that's going back and forth.
2: There's so much here, especially in the early Lando scenes, that feels here to put some grout in some cracks. And why does it say Han instead of Han? It's to razz him, because Han says Sabic instead of Sabak. And so he's going to call him hand just to give him some crap the whole way. Later on, we're going to see the Millennium Falcon, which we saw in episode three, but now it looks very different. There's the escape pod in the middle. He's like, oh, yes, I've made modifications. I put the escape pod between the front gambles and everything. I'm like, you are just spouting
1: exposition for people like me. Yeah, I don't know why it can just be the Millennium Falcon and look new.
3: Think about Lego movie and that's what you do. You set up those jokes. Everything was a reference in those two. Comedy today, Family Guy, Simpsons, all of that stuff is mile-a-minute referencing. That is what it is today.
1: Yeah, but these are references with no punchlines. It's just like, hey, guys, here's why the Millennium Falcon's gonna look different.
3: I think these are still jokes, because later they're gonna get rid of that escape pod by feeding it to a monster. So that's why the Millennium Falcon doesn't have an escape pod. I guess that's a thing somebody cared about. He
1: couldn't replace it in 20 years.
2: (laughs) Maybe. I mean, maybe it was replaced again.
1: (laughs) Artie, Artie cares, I can tell. I mean,
2: it's just, it does... Feel like it is referencing that line that the escape pod has been jettisoned. I thought they actually looked at like ship logs and saw the escape pod was jettisoned because in the radio drama, you hear Han tell Chewbacca, fire off all the escape pods before we get there. No,
3: it's just. There isn't an escape pod on this ship. And to be clear, for a lot of people, they're not deep enough into the lore to get that kind of referencing. You guys are deep enough in that lore to know that there is a radio play where something like that would be said. I'm not hearing that you're loving that this is being done.
1: I want to enjoy this as a film that's placed in the Star Wars universe. It could be a heist film, whatever kind of film they want to tell. I don't necessarily need everything connected. Arnie brought up the problem with prequels. You talk about all kinds of prequels, the alien prequels, all those. It just, it feels like we need to explain every little thing, and I don't find that necessary. Just uh, let things happen between the movies that never get explained.
3: Yeah, no, I agree. Dramatically, I definitely on board a lot of times. Prequels dramatically don't pay off by seeing where the little details come from but comedy it's different again you guys love deadpool it, that is a comedy though this is
1: not a comedy and i f- it is a comedy it's not funny <laughs> Here's the thing. I got excited when Donald Glover shows up as Lando. I love just when he flashes that smile in that trailer. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Whoever this actor is playing Han, he might need acting lessons, but I'm excited for Donald Glover. Enjoy his music, his stand-up. I haven't watched his TV stuff, but this guy is j- just a threat with everything. He's a writer. He d- does it all.
2: I can't say I like his music, but I did like him on Community, and I think he's a good writer. He wrote for 30 Rock for years before he was even in front of the camera, and he wrote during the best season. So I do like Donald Glover. I actually disliked him when he became a little bit of a drama queen and quit community and Instagrammed a whole bunch of notes about his lack of self-confidence and then started calling himself Childish Gambino. And I'm like, I'm hands off. Glover's too weird for me. And I do not like his music. I tried that This Is America song. And is that even a song or is that a tone poem?
1: That's very different than most of his stuff.
3: Yeah, I I mean, he was up for the Grammy for Best Album last year. I mean, and it was great. It was a great album.
1: And the thing is, again, I'm thinking of a young Han solo film. What should it feel like? I go to that roguish, outsider, rebel type feel. And I kind of feel like here in the Sabak scene where they're gambling and you get that back and forth between Han and Lando. I wish that vibe was more of this film.
2: Every scene with Donald Glover in it is better than every scene without him in it in this <laughs> yes. movie 100 give him a lando spinoff asap because he is channeling billy d not during empire billy d but i've seen some of billy d's earlier works he's channeling 70s black exploitation suave ladies man billy d that's what got him the star wars role is what he was doing before that i think glover studied it and embodies it I love him in this film. I just love Better Buckle Up, Baby. And I love that he has a closet full of just capes. Oh my god, that's hysterical. And the one Kira puts on is the one he's wearing in Empire. So he never gets to afford new capes, I guess. He's wearing a 20-year-old cape. You know, I like this movie. It goes to a good place with me after they get out past the train scene. And here we're playing Sabak. I'm like really happy. I'm having fun. I think the insect to the left of Han is man thing for a little bit. But then I realize (laughs) it's an insect. And this scene, they have a really cool thing on YouTube. You can go and watch the scene where they're playing the last hand. But it's a 360-degree view. You can look anywhere you want to in the room at that time. It's like complete
1: VR. And the screen is bright enough that you can see stuff, right?
2: Yeah. It actually gets brighter in these scenes, too, though. I feel... It does. (laughs) We got out of the smoke and haze that was everywhere before the train scene, and we can now see faces and see shapes and things. But in the very first hand of savik or their first night playing does the falcon have to go into the pot you mentioned deadpool and stewart you have ruined something for me you just you know the way some people say when they hear our ripping apart movies they can't like the movies anymore you ruined something for me when we reviewed x-men origins wolverine
1: that that movie ruined anything you felt for it (laughs) whatever
2: you're accusing me of i'm not guilty you pointed out the glaring flaw of It's a checklist. Here's how Wolverine got his claws. Here's how Wolverine got his metal. Here's how Wolverine got his cool biker jacket. And you said that on the show, and from now on, now I see so many of these movies as checking those boxes. Here's how Han got Chewbacca, his co-pilot. Here's how Han is getting the Falcon. Here's how Han got his gun belt, and here's how Han got his gun. Beckett gave him the gun which he used to shoot
1: Greedo. He didn't change guns in 20 years? His gun didn't break? (laughs) This is what I I'm saying, Arnie, is this film, it takes everything we know about Han from the original trilogy, and all that stuff happened... In one movie, in a a week or however long this movie takes place, he got the Falcon, he met Chewie, he got his blaster, he did the Kessel Run. It's all compacted in this one film, and that is the problem with a lot of prequels. It's like, we gotta explain everything. No, just, how about you and Chewie just meet in this film?
2: Couldn't you just leave it Han and Lando say they're going to have a rematch sometime, and that Lando won the ship in a card game, allude to Han later getting the Falcon or something like that, at a couple points, I found myself literally rolling my eyes. I didn't even know that was a body language I have. But I'm like, I'm looking at the Oh my God, I'm actually rolling
3: my eyes. Yeah, this movie is not sophisticated and deep. There are some prequels I would put Dark Knight and Casino Royale where they build the character and it's really clever and you can't anticipate. And then there's ones where you can see it coming a mile away. Star Wars has never been sophisticated. Even the best one, children can follow it. It's not hard to understand.
1: Oh, you, you try to have a child explain episode one and taxation of trading routes to you. Good luck.
3: I'm saying that that's the problem, is that when it tries to be sophisticated, it usually fails. You need to accept the fact that this world is not going to have these layers and nuances. And yes, it's going to be done in a pedestrian manner. No, 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 no. Here's the difference. Lucas
2: was better at it it's not like in one movie Anakin met Obi-Wan he was a great pilot he fought in the Clone War and then he ended up in the armor all in the span of two hours and 15 minutes but with Han that's kind of what we get
3: You can tell yourself all you want that Lucas is better at it. I watched those prequels. That is not true. This is on that same level. And I think, yeah, it's not the sting. These things are not as complicated. The setups and who's playing who and all of that is not as intricate as the best movies that play with those tropes. But it is more clever than, like, the mystery and Attack of the Clones. There is more sophistication than the most rudimentary Star Wars. I think that they're serving the audience they always have.
1: No, no, I mean, my wife's watching this, and she's not a big Star Wars fan, and this one, she's like, it just feels like there's a lot of stuff I'm not getting. And so, for me, as a fan, it's annoying that you're trying to cram it all into one film, and for her as not a fan, it's annoying that it's all crammed into one film, because it doesn't make sense to her.
3: It would play much better if we were laughing more. If This thing, were funnier and more uproarious. We wouldn't be paying attention to the plot clumsiness. They could even be self-referential and point out that it's clumsy, Deadpool style. They could do it that way. And I think that was a vision for this movie that went away. But even though I feel it's going too far, it has me in a
2: happy place. I like
3: that Lando is
2: there and he needs some... Money himself, he's hit the hard times. I don't know why he's not madder that Han lied about having a ship and can't pay off his debts. But I'm so with this movie as he's negotiating for 25% of the take with
3: Beckett. I think there are opportunities to be weirder and they don't go there. Case in point, Lando, I mean, I like What Donald Glover is doing, but it feels tamped down. They pushed it down. They didn't want it to go too crazy. They have a perfect opportunity to explore something really weird here because he's got this droid. That he wants to bone a robot? L3, yeah. I kept hearing that this was a pansexual Lando in the preliminary materials, and I just thought that that would mean that he was going to be really kinky, and they just don't go there with this robot. She's a lot of fun, but she ends up being more of like a social justice warrior for droids.
1: Uh, you're you're saying a lot of fun. I just find her annoying.
2: I like her. I like that when we meet Lando, there's like battle bots going on, and we got a couple yes, Conch g- <laughs> droids going at each other. And who's the referee? Clint Howard. Got to get Clint Howard cameo. Yeah, Ron's <laughs> brother is always in all those films, right? Not all, there's a couple he was not in, but he is here, and now he's been in both Star Trek and Star Wars, because he was in the very first episode of Star Trek as a little kid. Wow, I didn't know that. He was bald in it, too, if you can believe it. He's always bald. I kind of do. He's always been ugly and bald, right? Yes, they got him because he was weird looking, even when he was like four. But L337, you guys know what that spells, right? Leet. Leet speak like the hardcore gamers, you're a noob, I'm gonna pwn you, all of that, so that that's what they're referencing. But yeah, I kind of find this social justice warrior, cranky, sassy robot funny. Like, When Lando says, we're going to Castle.
1: Why? Because you're my human overlord. (laughs) I don't know. We got that with K2SO in Rogue One, a sarcastic robot. And that one worked better for me. Here, it just feels like, oh, let's up that game. People laughed at him. We'll make this one even crazier.
3: If Lando was boning her, I think that that would make it. Oh,
1: like, when they start implying that, I'm like, oh, this is going to get interesting. I guess as an adult, yes, let's explore that in the Star Wars film. Which is not what you want your children to see, though, probably.
2: I love that Kira asks... How does that work? And
3: all L3 has
2: to say is, it works.
3: Yeah, I, again, there's something that they had here that they could have gone, but someone said, this is Lucas. We're not going there. And so it, she just feels like a more neurotic C-3PO. She's introduced, yeah, trying to save droids and her mission, her her whole death. It will result from trying to free robots from their human enslavers. I did think of
2: K2SO, Jacob. And I like K2SO a lot better. I actually felt bad when K2SO died. He was my favorite Rogue One character. My
1: wife cried when he died!
2: Here... I don't care that this droid dies. I don't ever get as attached to her as I did to John
3: Favreau. But I find her sassiness funny. It's enough. It's all that I'm going to say here. They could have taken it. They could have run with it. They could have done some really crazy new innovative things. But that's not where they're at with these new Star Wars movies. They are not trying to innovate. They are trying to regress and bring it back to the Lucas that we remember from the 70s and early 80s. Is that wrong? I don't know. I can respect the fact that they're trying to preserve quality control. I can respect the fact that sometimes Bond embarrassed himself. Mediocrity
1: is not quality control, though.
3: Well, I mean, I would argue that a lot of the Star Wars movies are pretty mediocre. I only really like two of them, to be honest.
1: (laughs) In some ways, I could respect the prequels more just because Lucas does some weird, crazy stuff with it. There's a lot of bad in there, too. But with Force Awakens, I felt like that's our reunion show now. Let's do something with the Star Wars universe. And uh, we're not there yet.
3: We're not at the point where they feel they need to do something new. Quite the opposite. And so consequently, they don't get much mileage out of the comedy. There's comedy here, I would even call this one a comedic episode, but it will pale in comparison to comedies that most people think of. To me, this
2: isn't a comedy, it's an action film with a couple of wry lines. Star Wars was funnier. Star Wars had bits that I didn't even understand were humor until I was much older. Here, I don't think that they get that just right, but once you've got your team together we get lando kira chewy beckett and han you got your five people together l3 don't forget her well she dies very quickly they're on the ship and we get the first shot of the falcon and i like the introduction of the ship the hero shots of it but once you got the core five together maybe six with l3 i'm in a happy place i like the banter i like the back and forth i like that chewbacca is learning to play chess so much better than when chewbacca rips somebody's arms off i like the more subtle fun
1: bringing about that chess game is not subtle that's like the fourth time that things appeared in these films
3: it's over pretty quick though i This movie's what, two and a half hours long? 2.15. Too long, yes. See, I thought it was breezy. I couldn't believe the movie was over before it was. I was expecting another hour, but we end up at Kessel right away. They go into this maelstrom, which is, I guess, like some kind of permanent space storm where if you go deep into the fog and stray from the lighted pathways, you can, I don't know, get lost or break into carbon.
1: I was hoping for some really cool visuals, and it's Disney, it's Star Wars, they have unlimited money, but maybe, you know, with their budgets and having to reshoot most of the film. They talk about like, yeah, this, these are just planets colliding into each other, and you have to follow this one path. I'm like, oh, this might look really cool. And again, it's just kind of dark and foggy.
2: This was the most expensive Star Wars movie ever, probably because of the because reshoots. Of, they
3: had to do it twice.
2: It's not all on the screen, yeah.
3: I think this movie looks phenomenal. I can't believe you guys are dissing it, but it sounds like you just don't like dark Look, What I'm responding to is what you don't want.
1: I couldn't see things. Yes. It rich blacks. It was too dark to see things at times. I
2: love darkness. I love it when there's very specific use of light and illumination. Godfather. Yeah. Godfather was perfect for that. Here, I just... Can't see. That's the difference. I, you know, that's like saying, oh, you hate snow because you don't like whiteout conditions when you're on the road. No.
3: (laughs) Okay. uh, Be that as it may, to each its own, I can imagine that that's part of why you might be in a less agreeable mood, but I'm finding this movie always easy to watch, getting better as it goes, and a little disappointed that we're already at the vault and scene feels like it lasts five minutes. Here's
2: what I noticed with the pacing is the first half hour. I really felt it because I checked my watch and I'm like, okay, we were exactly at the 30-minute mark, but this is when Han left memben And then I did not feel pacing go wrong until the very end. And then I looked at my watch and I'm like, wait, we're two hours in. You know what this movie does not have? And we'll get to it, but there's not what I would consider the traditional Star Wars climax of massive battles. It is a far more subdued, personal climax to a film. And so... I'm like, we still have to have at least a half an hour of battle somewhere, because every Star Wars movie does, and we don't get that here. So I don't feel it's over long. But when I first saw it, I'm like, oh my god, we hit the two-hour mark. How much more is there?
1: Yeah, you get your battle back on Kessel. L3's gonna take the restraining bolts off of the astromechs. And again, I like some of the new designs here. That's kind of what's keeping my interest, is what's different. And yeah, these astromechs, they're not your typical R2 units, and they're revolting. Oh, and I
2: had... Such a smile on my face I always love it when they take people Humans and make them small droids Like power droids The one that's dancing on the control panel And is sparking I love that droid I want a figure of that droid
1: And there's a moment here on Kessel Where I just threw my arms up Kind of in frustration We get Beckett, Woody Harrelson's character He walks out Because they're doing this Again, let's put Chewie in chains, Just like we did in New Hope And Beckett's got that skiff outfit that Lando used as a disguise in Return of the Jedi. Oh, it was frustrating. Like, Why is this a callback?
3: Why is it so frustrating? It makes it feel
1: small. It makes it feel like, oh, this is the stuff you really want to see. Give me something new instead of saying, hey, remember this outfit that Lando wore? Here it is again. Remember liking it when you were seven years old? Here it is again. I was not
2: upset for that reason. I was upset because that was a standard Jabba guard outfit. There were other people
1: in that <laughs> outfit. See, you're going to level deeper than me. It's a joke. <laughs> I mean,
3: the level of detail that you are... It's not a joke! It's a one-off ha and that's it. And that's what I was like until I started realizing, wait, he just happens to have the outfit that Jabba's guards exactly wear? Okay, you know, there is a part of like Gulliver's Travels where he goes through the land where the people can't appreciate beauty. They like dissect the flowers and all. They can't appreciate the flower for what it is. You guys, it was a one-off joke. It shouldn't make anyone angry. No, no, no. This
1: isn't a one-off joke, Stuart. You called it. This is reference after reference after reference. This is just another reference. And I'm pulling for you, stars. I want to feel some new stuff. Stop giving me old costumes and old references. Make this universe expand it again. Stop making it small. That was my problem with the prequels, and they're just
3: continuing to do that. Oh, That I'll I'll give you. If you are waiting for this to be the movie in which they finally show you something new, don't watch this movie, because you're absolutely right. They could have pursued Marvel and gone and tried to be something innovative and take it away from the spirit of Lucas, and several people behind the scenes said absolutely not. And yeah, they're just falling back into old behaviors. They are afraid to change, which is ultimately going to get them, because I feel like this movie feels futsy and old, and that's kind of what hurt Superman Returns. Sometimes too much nostalgia can really hurt a film, and I'm wondering how many people that don't know the old movies and love the old movies are really going to enjoy all of these end jokes I did read an article that said it was contrasting Marvel and
2: Star Wars and saying Marvel continues to push forward and do new things and subvert expectations. And all Star Wars has done at that point with three movies is play on our nostalgia and that tank is running empty and they got to give us something new. And maybe Ryan Johnson was paving the way for that with episode eight, but it's certainly not here. But there was a callback that did make me laugh out loud because while Beckett's doing his thing, Kira goes in and she's there with the drooling head of Castle, whoever that was, and she has to fight him. She starts doing some ninja moves, comes out and says, Oh, yeah, Voss taught me Terraskasi. Terraskasi. <laughs>
1: I did read this. It's it's from that really bad PlayStation Star Wars fighting game.
2: Imagine if you will, Stuart. I've said this on many podcasts. Star Wars never innovated a game. They looked at the games that were out there and said, we're going to put a Star Wars skin on it. Mm-hmm. They did it with Wing Commander. They did it with Command and Conquer. Well, they did it with Mortal Kombat. There was actually a fighter game where, like, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia could do fatalities. And it was called Masters of Terras Cassi, And that was the martial arts that they were supposed to use. And it was a deplorable, horrible game. Yeah, it was
1: so bad. It was
2: bad in concept. It was bad in execution. It had a bad engine. It was hard to control. So the fact that she walks out and is like, I know Terras Cassi had me laughing my ass off.
3: I'll hold my thoughts on Mortal Kombat until next week. But (laughs) yeah, I I can see how that would be. Again, there's an inside jokes. You do like some of it. You just don't like so much of it.
1: But you know what? Tiracasi wasn't called out in six other Star Wars films. This is the first time. So that's the line for me is, are they new? Is it a new reference? Or is they just playing that same joke over and over?
3: Or is it because this isn't dirty enough? It isn't outrageous? Because it's not to your sense of humor. Because it's like an old man comedy.
1: This is not a comedy. You can insist this is a comedy all you want. I will never buy that.
3: No. Listen, it's a movie with humor
2: that does not make it a comedy. That's like saying that Avengers was a comedy because Cap says I get that
1: reference.
3: No, this is sillier than The Avengers. No. This is more like Ant-Man.
1: If I recommend is based on if this is a comedy, then not recommend. Strong not recommend.
3: Agreed
2: immediately. If this is a comedy, not recommend. If you take it as a Star Wars film, a sci-fi action film that has a little bit of levity, then... Yeah, well, we'll get there.
1: And you got Chewy; He's saving other Wookiees there. And do female Wookiees have bare faces? Again, it was a very dark screen, but they look like Planet of the Apes to me. No, no, not Planet of the Apes.
3: It was Shaka from Land of the Lost. I was going to say <laughs> Land of the Lost.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Shaka. Shaka. don't like.
3: This is where they not being able to see is advantageous because <laughs> I think those costumes were awful. <laughs> yeah, those were terrible. I've never seen bald-faced Wookiees. I was sitting there
2: the second time I watched it because the first night I said there was a bad bulb in addition to everything so the second time i watched it, i'm like i really want to see if that face was as bad as it looked they intentionally edit around you do not see those wookies very much yeah but what you do see
1: i'm like do some wookies choose to shave and chewbacca's the zz top wookie that's what i was wondering like Yeah, Chewie's got a beard and like the females shave their faces. That's not what happened in the holiday special, but okay.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Chewie's at a dilemma that he should have a moment in this film where he has to pick between his new friend and these people that I think he's always been motivated to get back to. They had that throwaway line about he wants to help his tribe or his family and here's the opportunity to do that. And he ends up coming back to help Han push the fuel to the Millennium Falcon.
1: He like rubbed noses with one of them. I'm like, wait, is that his wife? Is he just, like, taking off and ditching his wife? But I guess that's just the Wookiee appreciation, nose nuzzle. Yeah, I saw this in the trailer,
2: and I thought, since this is an origin story, we were going to see Mala. I was really wondering if Mala would be there. Would Lumpy be there? Oh, yeah, Lumpy would be. Would Itchy be in the background with some porn? Because you see him do this head bump thing that looks like a romantic gesture. But no, I guess this is just how Wookiees are like high fiving each other is with the. I mean, they shower naked with strangers, so why not? But yeah, he does choose Han.
1: I mean, how are those Wookiees going to get off the planet anyway? Han's the one with the ship.
3: And L3, again, it feels. Kind of like with Dandy Newton, I'm like, I was just growing to like you, you're dead.
1: And Donald Glover, he had a thing for that robot because he is broke up when it gets shot and he's trying to carry it back to the ship. One thing about L3, that with this pansexuality,
2: I did like how she called Lando out for flirting with Han.
3: Star Wars is sexless, though. At the end of the day, we had this debate, I remember, in Rogue One. Did the two Japanese guys, were they homosexual or were they just part of some samurai code? It's It's so vague. In this world, you never get passion. No one has ever got lust. Maybe Jabba.
2: I concur with that in certain regards. I mean, we shouldn't be getting sex scenes in a Star Wars film, but I'm fine with
3: romance of whatever kind. And I'm, I just found it funny because I just love Lando in this film. It's a good character. It works. It's fun. Again, I think. Like many things in this film, there were opportunities to expand on it and have it be more than sort of a one-note performance, but it ends up kind of being a one-note performance.
2: And I
3: have a smile on my face though for the rest of the movie because they start
2: explaining things i didn't even need explained and empire strikes back at one point han says to 3po we need you to talk to the Nava computer and 3po goes i don't know where your ship learned to communicate but she has the most peculiar dialect it's l3 we get to see her uploaded and part of the ship the reason the ship is cranky and the ship has attitude the
1: ship is conscious I also took this as a swipe against Han, though. Like, he's supposed to be this great pilot, but they t- call out L3 as, like, having, like, some of the best navigation data or whatever in her system, and they've just uploaded it to the Millennium Falcon. So that L3 is still making those decisions. So I found that kind of slightly humorous. Oh, he's really not that great. He's just got a really good AI a- on board.
2: I would like it if we could see a bit more of him being a pilot. Like, here's a route, but you've got to be a really good pilot to make that route.
3: I think that's kind of what they're setting up here is that because an Imperial destroyer is coming at them, they have to now not go back the the Lantern way, but find their own way to Kessel. And so he's got to do this shortcut that's really dangerous and, you know, has to evade Cthulhu. True story, Ron Howard was going to make a H.P. Lovecraft movie, and I'm guessing this is a throwaway design. I like this, but you know what I like most? The score.
1: Cause they use the old Empire score.
2: They use so much old score. They go to a new hope. It starts when they see the Star Destroyer, and you hear the really kind of cheesy Bomb ba, ba, Bomb. But I'm smiling because it's that old score being brought back. The score to this does not feel very Star Warsy. It's better than Giachinos, do not get me wrong there. But there's been a lot of choirs and a lot of vocals going on in the score.
1: Yeah, this Nest has a choir theme, which was weird.
2: But I really like it when I'm seeing Han do deft flying maneuvers and hearing that old score. It's taking me back to feeling like a kid, and I didn't want it the same way I didn't want to roll my eyes earlier, but I have a huge smile on my face from this moment till the end of the movie. I understand I'm being played. The music is grabbing heartstrings and pulling at them and saying, remember how you liked it when you were seven? But... It's working. I'm being manipulated. It's fan service, but I sometimes enjoy being serviced.
1: Yeah, I mean, that has always been one of my favorite pieces of the score and Empire when they're in the asteroid field. Like, I did smile. Again, they're playing that nostalgia. That is a beat I do like and a piece of music I do like. So, yeah, that that worked for me for for the brief moment they played it.
3: It's a tricky thing. I mean, I don't think that they should not be a Star Wars movie. There's some beats they need to hit. How many they hit and how they play them, if they take them serious enough or too seriously, uh, this is where we you need strong directorial division. And that's what we're not getting.
1: You know what beat they didn't play in this one, which I appreciated? They didn't force 3PO and R2 into this film. Like in Rogue One, it seems real weird when they show up here. It's not forced. They don't show up. It's the first Star Wars film, I guess, without them. And I'm fine with that. There should have been Star Wars films without them earlier. <laughs> like Rogue One. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'm... Surprised how
2: quickly the Kessel Run is over, Mm. I do realize that, and I keep forgetting, every Star Wars movie has certain things that have to happen, and one of them, improbably, is an attack by some beastie. But I'm glad that there wasn't a bigger fish this time, there was just the (laughs) one squid monster, and I do like how it gets sucked into the vortex, and it gets this really scared look on its face. And that's Han's piloting and ingenuity doing it, so we're seeing him be heroic there, if not actually flying the 12 parsecs.
3: Right, although they've siphoned off some of the hyperfuel, and I don't know if L3 being in the mix is doing anything either. But no, that's what I'm
1: saying, L3 is helping out there.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know who to credit, kind of like this movie. If that was more of
1: Han's Character in this that he was a con man I could go with it that he brags about doing the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs when it was really a computer that figured it all out for him because a parsec it's not a speed it's a like a straight line so he's able to do this in like 12 movements or whatever mm-hmm. so The fact that a computer figured it out, that adds to his character, that he is kind of a con, that he isn't legit.
2: I liked that as soon as he landed, he sees some stranger. I flew the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. That explains why when Obi-Wan comes up, you've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Should I have? It ran the Kessel run in under 12 parsecs. Like, immediately. This is just this guy's go-to brag.
3: I'm glad you told me where it came from originally, because I don't even remember this in the original trilogy. But I knew it had to be a thing. Like the dice. Oh, I know people were excited to see Kessel here. Yeah, because there was also when C-3PO
2: said in the first movie, We'll be sent to the spice mines of Kessel, smashed into who knows what. I
3: don't quote the Star Wars universe. I don't that's know these things. That's why we have you.
1: Different perspective, Stuart.
3: <laughs> yes. And again, I'm wondering who's being served. I would think that you guys would be better served than someone like me that's not going to get in all of these in-jokes, except you're acting like you don't like in-jokes anymore. Listen, I'm fine with in-references.
2: Look at me. I was smiling about Terris Cassie and all the right. Lando novels. I'm good with that. It's... The question of the sophistication of the humor at times. When they're playing for the lowest common denominator, like do you remember what the Hat Lando
3: wore in Return of the Jedi that I don't like? I don't think that Star Wars has ever shot for the highest levels. It's not esoteric. That's why it has mass appeal. It is always played for all audiences. It's not clever. It's not overly sophisticated. It feels like a movie serial from the 40s. I think if you're going to make more Star
2: Wars movies, you need to expand the universe. You need to go new places and give us new things. But they need to expand the universe, but yet they need to be in the same universe. So when they say Beckett killed Ara Singh, Ara Singh has never been mentioned by name in any Star Wars movie.
1: I don't even know how she got to be popular. She was in a half second of Phantom Menace. The fact that they're referencing
2: Ara Singh, the fact that people are bumping into each other. When Val says, why did we get these guys? Let's get Bosk. I can go with that because they're living in the same place and Bosk is one of the best of the best. That's why he was on the ship with Vader there. He'd be a go-to. And unlike the Clone Wars cartoons, which took place 30 years earlier, this is actually within a decade of when we saw Bosque, so I'll go with it. But there's a limit to how much you do it. So half of it worked, half of
1: it didn't. Yeah, what confuses me, Stuart, is you're always, well, if you're a fan of something, you should want it to be good and not just do that same old stuff. And and now you're kind of like, yeah, why doesn't it just do Star Wars stuff? And why aren't you guys happy with that? Because I want it to be good and I want it to expand and I want it to feel like a, a heist film in the Star Wars universe and not just a bunch of references.
3: Everything you guys are bringing up, I agree with. I think I've said it in other shows. I think you're right. I mean, that was certainly my review of Clone Wars. The movie was that, It was frustrating to see them running into the same people when they have such a vast universe they could be exploring. I get all that. But for this movie, to watch this film, to me, feels so innocuous. So not controversial, to me it would feel like it would go down easy. Well,
2: understand, I've been trying to bring up the stuff I'm also liking, because I'm liking much more than I'm not once the train ride ended. There's a few things that needle me. Lando outfit needles me. Yeah. The having to bet for the Falcon the first time needles me, but these are quibbles compared to the problems I had when we were on Corellia and we were on Mimbin.
1: Okay. And I just find this kind of mediocre, so the fact there's problems here, they're just magnified because there's not a whole lot to like because it's just kind of an average mediocre space film. I
3: I think that's Star
1: Wars. (laughs) I think it is a pretty mediocre franchise. Empire is not mediocre. I I can agree with you on the prequels and some of the other stuff, but the best of Star Wars does not feel mediocre to me.
3: Okay, fair enough. People hold on to those first two films like that's the entire series. And I'm like, that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away.
1: And I like The Force Awakens, which was a nostalgia trip. I like Rogue One. So... uh, I like some of the prequel stuff. So I'm all throughout there. It's just here. Here's what it is. And maybe this is a bias that this Star Wars. I mean, under Lucas, it was a billion dollar corporation, but now it's Disney. They got all the money in the world. They should be able to buy the best writers, the best directors, the best special effects. It shouldn't be mediocre. It should be good.
3: They should take more risks. I'll give you that. And I think they're trying to here. We take a a hard turn in tone as we get back to this refinery and we find out that, in fact, Infa's Nest is actually the Rebellion. I didn't suspect that. I assumed that they were pirates and that the fact that they're here for this fuel so that they can basically fund what will ultimately be the Rebels. I thought it was a revelatory touching kind of idea. Everyone takes off their masks. We see Warwick Davis and what looks like an albino no,
1: <laughs> yeah, there is a roadie in there. I also, looked like one of the guys from Rogue One. Uh, he had like, I don't know, a breathing mask or something.
3: Yeah, his name's Two
1: Tubes. Two Tubes.
2: Again, that's in the Star Wars tradition. Yeah, and apparently Warwick Davis here, because I was thinking, are they just cluttering the universe with Warwick Davis clones? You know, did he get off to Camino? No, he's playing the same character he played at the pod race in episode one. Come
1: on, all right. That's something for some future book, I guess. I don't care. <laughs> that seems stupid to me. <laughs> yeah, his name's Weasel. <laughs> and it it was weird they hold on emphasis nest when she takes her mask off like like, hold on her i'm like okay am i supposed to know who that is Is that han's sister is mom who is this person she has a very unique look it felt like that was supposed to be a big revelation and it's not
3: i was looking to you guys to tell me why that was important why that was such a showcased moment you don't know either okay (laughs) this is a
1: new character right arnie
3: Yeah, I felt like it should have been somebody, but it wasn't.
2: I think we're just supposed to be like, it's a pretty girl, not an ugly man. Okay.
1: And I do like this climax, if you could call it that. Arnie, you said there's no big battle in this film. And I kind of like that, that it becomes more of a personal thing here at the end where Han, again, I wish he had more of a character arc that he's going to have to learn to be the good guy.
3: Yeah.
2: Upon reflection, I like how this movie ends, but it's simply on the first watch i'm like well where's our giant battle we just all the big battles we've had feel really rushed i mean kessel you call it a heist Stuart, but it at no point ever felt as intricate as an oceans film there no. were never reveals of you think we did this but this was our plan all along haha even the very end doesn't really have that it tries a little bit but doesn't give me that kind of feel that Oceans 11 does with the, we were in the fake vault.
3: No, that's what comes here. Once we get back and Dryden's like, oh, these look like the hyper fuel that we were expecting, but I know that you're lying to me because I have Beckett in the other room here. This feels like it could be an Oceans moment, but I agree with you. Yes, everything about what they did and pulled off felt really quick. Yeah, quick, easy, too easy. And
2: if that's supposed to be the big battle, again, it's Star Wars. This one's actually missing the war.
1: But Well, this is a Star Wars story. No, true. But
2: I do find it interesting that Han was so quick and Beckett went along with it. All right. Take all the fuel, I guess, because we knew Voss was a bad guy. We were introduced to him gutting a governor, but maybe we'd be like, well, it's just an imperial. We can kill them. But when we find out that Crimson Dawn came along and cut out the tongues of all these people so that they couldn't stop stealing their fuel, then Han's going to say, okay, take all of our fuel, give it to the rebellion. It's okay if I have to go risk my life and never get money.
3: He's very simple. The only things he ever wanted to do was get Behind the wheel of a ship and be with the girl that he loved. And he thinks he has that. So he's apolitical. And I think he's seen enough of the empire's treatment of common people to realize that he doesn't want to reenlist. You know, they are bad. Like you wouldn't want to pal around it. And so he just thinks I'm going to be able to get back into the Falcon and go with Kira and have my happy ending. Lando takes off. And then <laughs> Kira, yeah, I mean, yeah, she helps him take down Paul Bettany, but she's not going to go away with him. No,
2: I do like her Terras Kasi fight. Before, we didn't get to see her do Terras Kasi. We just, I honestly thought she killed the guy with her cape. It was, She did like a Dracula move. I saw the cape fly and then there was a body. I thought she sucked out his blood or something. But now we get to see her actually do the moves and she's good with a sword. She's good with a sword in Game of Thrones. She was able to bring that skill here. I do think he brought a knife to a sword fight. Yeah, I thought he looked hopelessly (laughs) outmatched. And Solo had a gun. I mean, it got
1: knocked out of his hand, though. No wonder
2: he had so many scars on his face. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a fun fight. It's just strange that this is the climax of the film. Is this? It's still, you're right, Ron Howard can't do action, or whoever's doing these action scenes can't do them. They all
3: feel over so quick. To me, the action scene comes afterwards. It's the stunner. The temperature of the room changed when she picked up that ring and called the boss of the boss she just killed. I could hear gasps throughout the theater.
1: Nothing in the theater I was in. Maybe they all saw it at an earlier showing and weren't surprised. Yeah,
2: nothing in my fan screening. In the other theater, I actually just turned and watched the people. One guy nodded. That was the entire reaction from the crowd.
1: It was one guy went, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, Darth Maul. We've been expecting him. And you guys don't care. I had this... Uh, not an existential crisis, but we're, you know, my wife and I, we saw the movie, we've gone to bed, we've kissed each other goodnight, we're kind of dozing off, and I sit up, I'm like, wait a second, if Darth Maul's in this movie, that means this is pre yes. episode one, so Han Solo's like 50 in A New Hope? That doesn't make sense. And then I said, no, there's stormtroopers in this, they didn't exist until Attack the Clones, they've destroyed all the continuity. And then I'm like, Okay, wait, I remember there's a robot Darth Maul in that cartoon.
2: Yeah, here's what I have to happen, is I'm like, Darth Maul, they brought him back. Okay, it's a prequel, I can get with that. So, Crimson Dawn is working for the Emperor? It's when I left the theater that I'm like, wait a second, this was after episode three. Mm. And here's my thinking, is first of all... I've stopped watching Star Wars cartoons. I still consider myself a Star Wars fan. I didn't like the cartoons. I know a lot of Star Wars fans who did.
1: No, they're not good.
2: (laughs) I know there's good episodes of the cartoons. In fact, the episodes where they brought Darth Maul back were some of the best episodes. But. Darth Maul was a great character who was underserved in the first film and killed too early. I like the thought of doing more with him, but bringing him back with robot legs and saying that you can cut somebody off at the waist, they can fall down thousands of feet and still end up with robot legs and alive, it's painful, but I'll go with it in a cartoon.
1: We got Grievous, who is a pair of lungs and a brain in a robot suit. That's not a problem for me in the Star Wars universe. I just
2: assumed that happened in a surgical center. I don't think that Maul fell into a surgical center at the bottom of that pit.
1: Does he have robot legs? I just saw a cloak. He does.
2: On the second viewing, I paid close attention. He has robot legs. But come on, I don't watch the cartoon. Are you going to tell me that there aren't Star Wars movie-only fans I know that somewhere that story group is sitting around going, it all matters. Everything matters. The Clone Wars cartoon, it's canon. The Rebels cartoon, it's canon. You got to watch. It's canon. Are you telling me... That you're actually going to have us come in and not explain to the audience why Darth Maul is alive with robot legs? I really tried to convince myself maybe it was just a different Zabrak, because it doesn't sound like Darth Maul.
1: Well, yeah, I read that they used the voice actor from the animated show, Uh because it's not the movie voice. No, because that was the Shaun of the Dead roommate in the movie.
2: He had one line, at last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi, at last we will have revenge. But I guess it's still Ray Park it was Ray Park there just with a different voice and the fact that he calls the lightsaber to him it just lights up the lightsaber what is he going to do with that is it dark is he watching the early scenes and wants to add
1: light <laughs> yeah have you seen <laughs> this film it is dark
3: <laughs> okay so again my question is you, did you like this or not I just heard 20 minutes about how you're mad that something can survive falling down a thing what I remember is you were like Darth Maul is the reason to see that shitty movie Phantom Menace and that <laughs> (laughs) Now we've had a pretty mediocre movie and you're complaining. You should be happy that the best thing about Phantom Menace is going to continue on in future movies. Okay, here's what you're telling me. What I I think the best part of Darth Maul
2: was in Phantom Menace was him fighting. Not him talking, not him strategizing, not him for some crazy reason running a crime syndicate. I liked his acrobatics. I liked his
1: ninja moves. It's like saying Alien Covenant was great because they finally got the xenomorph into a prequel.
3: Uh, it's a pretty mediocre film too. <laughs> I I'm stunned that you guys are so hard every time they try to do something to make you happy. No, Stuart, this
1: doesn't make me happy because I don't watch all the cartoons. It can. I just told you how it confused
3: me. I sat up in bed confused, trying to figure this out. Forget the cartoon! They brought back Darth Maul. That's it. Don't worry about the goddamn cartoon. But he's dead. He is clearly dead. Isn't that mysterious and exciting to see where that goes? No, because you know where it goes and you hate it and you're not open to what they're doing. And here's the thing. It's all canon. Guess what? I know how Darth Maul dies. But I read
1: an article. This was after I saw the film and I'm just kind of reading up on it. Someone wrote an article. It's like, this is a spoiler you might want to read about before you see the film if you're a casual Star Wars fan or else you're going to be really confused. Like, this, I think, for people like me, I didn't watch that cartoon. I kind of knew, oh, yeah, there was a Darth Maul with robot legs at some point in it. It's just confusing. This isn't the main point of the movie. Put this as a after credit scene, which they don't do in Star Wars film. It would have been more appropriate there. I agree. This
2: doesn't fit in this movie, and it's a mistake to try to randomly bring back this dead character. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> if Darth Maul was a character that was gonna pop out at the climax, if they'd set this up, that would have mattered. To this, it just feels like, hey, we're gonna get him talking, we're bringing him back, if you don't like this one, you're still gonna see the sequel, because Darth Maul's back.
2: Let me put a real fine point on this. Bringing back Darth Maul with robot legs, I just said... Is something that's fine in a cartoon i also just said i don't watch the cartoons because i think they're dumb so if you start bringing (coughs) so that that means you don't think they're fine you're just patronizing people that like the cartoon you know i actually liked those episodes of it but i have different standards for a cartoon if you're going to take the star wars movies and tell me they're of equal quality to the clone wars cartoon i'm
1: out Yeah, you're going to bring Stinky into an actual Star Wars film? I'm going to have a problem.
3: (laughs) I thought they brought something you liked. Again, I'm a little surprised that fans would be so reticent. I get... That you want something new. And I agree. I think you have a right to be mad that they're serving you day-old fries. I get it. Like, you would like the fries hot and fresh or something that you do have in your kitchen that is fresh. Give me some sweet potato fries. I don't need a regular potato fry. Yeah. What we're talking about is innovation. And they are not doing it. They don't want to do it. They are afraid to do it. And we see that even here in the end, Han's going to shoot first. Like, here was a character I really liked. I liked Beckett. He could have been a mentor. If this is going to be continue on and not wrap up, which I kind of was hoping, maybe foolishly, that this would be a close-ended story. I didn't realize that this would be a new franchise, but... Oh, it won't be. We'll see, but that was the idea. Yeah. That was the conception. I'm disappointed that Woody Harrelson's not continuing. I think he would have been a great foil for Solo for several movies. I like him in this movie. I could see that. I
2: was shocked that Han shot first. I mean, it just it comes out of nowhere.
1: You were. I was expecting that, and I was. I actually did like that. That felt like an fu to Lucas. Like we are going to bring that back.
2: I did like it. Everybody admits. I think every single person at Lucasfilm would admit that Lucas made a mistake having Greedo shoot at all. It's not that Han shot first. It's that Han was the only person who shot. Han shot only. So (laughs) the fact that he pulls the trigger here is good. I just wish it feels Disney to have Beckett live long enough to go, I'm glad you shot me, because I was going to kill you. You know, <laughs> it's like we couldn't just have Han kill a person. We had to have that person live long enough to confess murderous intent so that it was self-defense all along.
3: I never thought that Star Wars didn't make those moves. I've always felt that it simplified things for younger viewers. And yeah, it would be more sophisticated if it didn't do a lot of things that it did. But it feels in keeping with the universe that they had that moment. And then we, we do get this little
2: tag at the end. It does feel like a post credit scene before the credits. We get Lando back. And here's another callback. We know how Lando was like, you got a lot of guts coming here. After what you pulled. When Han shows up on Empire, we see that he's doing to Han what Han does to him here. Han is very angry and saying Chewie's going to kill him until Han realizes that he can steal the ship by making it so Lando can't cheat at
1: cards. Yeah, he just makes it a fair game. He doesn't do anything like bad.
3: Yeah, he's a good guy. Kira is totally right. She had him pegged. You are a good guy that wants to be an outlaw, but you're not. You are a hero. And that is what you aspire to be. And maybe part of his appeal, even though we like to think of him as the rogue one compared to Luke. The fact that Lando was a card cheat, I'm surprised didn't get called out earlier. But the
2: way Han hugs him, I knew exactly what was going on. I thought he'd take the whole device, but he just took the card out of the slot and he wins the Falcon. I know there's something about just having Han fly off to Jabba at the end that they want to do that leads at least to... possibly to A New Hope in his debt, but wouldn't it be great if they ended that Sabacc game like Rocky three, and you just, you could go either way. If there's another Han Solo movie, maybe he doesn't have the Falcon yet, but leave it a little mysterious as to who won the game.
1: Yeah, again, I would like it if they didn't cram Han's entire backstory that we know from the original trilogy into one film. Yeah, let the Falcon come another time. Let Jabba come another time. I would have always been okay with it here at the end. It was the fact that the
2: Falcon was even in the pot in the very first game that was a little bit problematic, because now we're repeating this. But I like it when Lando says, you've got it bad for that ship, and Han says it's mutual, because... L3 said she wasn't into Lando,
3: but I think she might be into Han. Yeah, and I think he wanted the ship earlier because he always wanted to be the pilot of it. Getting Lando involved means that he doesn't get to fly, and now he can finally fly. That's That has been his through line throughout the film. Simple though it may be, he can at last pilot his own ship. But can it stay on course? <laughs>
2: Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Solo, A Star Wars Story?
1: jacob buckle up baby i mean this is something i really actually thought a lot about because of my feelings for the film what does it mean if you follow now playing on twitter i did a whole thing what does it mean to give a film a recommend and what are you saying with that and, and where should the recommend come from and you know what i could only talk about where i'm coming from i feel as someone who enjoyed those star wars films as a kid and growing up that i'm ready for something new and maybe that means i move away from star wars maybe that's what that means sure. This has always been your role in this, Jacob. I'm the fan.
2: You're the fan who,
1: like, stopped collecting
2: and sold your toys.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so maybe it's unrealistic of me to expect Star Wars to evolve or do something different. But you know what? They got a billion-dollar corporation behind them. They could take some risk. If they want to turn it into it's a small world after all, then yeah, I should move on. But I found this movie, maybe because the beginning is just so choppy and hard to get into, it, it set a tone for the rest when it did improve it's hard to feel anything here now because the first 40 minutes were not great and i look at this film as a heist film not a great heist film as a weird sci-fi space film it's bland and mediocre so i'd say you know if you're just you love everything star wars you love stinky the hut then you're gonna enjoy this in my opinion doesn't matter but i would probably tell the average person hey should i see solo i don't see a reason for this movie to really exist i don't see it really do anything And so I'm not going to give it a general recommendation. So not recommend.
3: Stuart. You know, I feel like Kira a little bit here. You know, she calls Solo a good guy. I'm going to call this prequel a good time. Not a good movie, but a good enough time. It feels like a backhanded compliment, though, because we want an outlaw. We want the Star Wars story to have a little bit more oomph. And I do think it's because we're older, we're adults, and we have greater demands than we did when the original trilogy unfolded in the 80s and we were kids. I, too, this led me into a deeper thought about where we are at with event movies. And I just think that this is par for the course. This is what it is now. In the past, it was a rarity to have a big special effects fantasy film. You would look forward to them. You would wonder what would happen next in them. Now they're everywhere. Everything is a franchise these days. Characters aren't part of a story. They are part of your social media feed. And so we know what they eat for breakfast. We do know all this minutia. It's a different emphasis. And so, consequently, I think they have to. The way that a franchise stays in a person's mind is just by constantly reminding us of how much fun they were in the past and showing us all the old photos of what they used to do it has changed we used to look at movies to be forward thinking and now it is a nostalgic trip every movie is a hashtag throwback thursday now yeah with franchise films A lot of it has to do with referencing what you did in the past to remind folks why they're still going to keep you around and call you a friend. And Solo is no worse than many people on that. You can say it's not sophisticated. I definitely agree... It needs to adapt and change. Again, I think about Bond. Bond would try things out. Every movie, he would, you know, sometimes get a new actor playing him, sometimes would do things that are out of character. You got to try new things, even though you got a formula here. I thought they did a little bit with a Heist Oceans vibe to it. But ultimately, this movie has so little directorial stamp on it that it's just not there. And so, yeah, it's sad. I do feel like this movie could have been a whole lot better, but... I smiled. I golf clapped. I thought it was fine. I can see ultimately the problem is they're not stepping away from Lucas. But if you don't have a problem with that, if you want to watch a movie that reminds you of what you liked about Han Solo, I think there's enough here to say mild recommend.
2: I'm glad we have recommends for this show more than most to really sum up because I was hard on this film for the first 45 minutes of it because it was hard to see and I couldn't get my hands around any characters. I did enjoy the rest of it, though. I've seen it twice and my second watching was exactly the same as my first. Did I love this movie? No, I absolutely don't love this movie. It was okay. There are things about it I do love. The music, the way they bring it back, the references to the Star Cave of Thonboka, Donald Glover's performance, all of these things are things I love in this movie. The space battle with Woody Harrelson on that gun, I love him doing that. I love when the gun breaks off and he goes, I hurt my thumbs. I love that moment. But... Those are little things I love. There are also little things I hate, like, hey, it's the outfit from Return of the Jedi. Hey, the Millennium Falcons in the game the first night. But the one thing this movie did, and this is really an improvement for a Star Wars film, it at no way shit the bed. I got thinking about it. The past six Star Wars films have all shit the bed in one way or another. The Phantom Menace may have had the biggest diarrhea spill with both Jake Lloyd and Jar Jar. But Attack of the Clones. and s- Yes. <laughs> Revenge of the Sith. with No! Yeah, exactly. The Force Awakens. You need a teacher! I don't and- even know what that is. Yeah, it's a horrible, horrible line from Kylo Ren. And the fact that Kylo Ren threw temper tantrums. Rogue One with Jin's sudden, let's go on the attack when they cut out any reason for her character to have motivation. Episode 8 with Broom Boy and everything on Casino Planet. No, everything in Episode 8.
1: Episode 8 was just a a bed covered in shit.
3: Uh, You know what? I'm willing to have the debate that it might be worse than Phantom Menace. It might be, actually. All I'm saying is...
2: At least every Star Wars movie since Return of the Jedi, and maybe even Return of the Jedi, depending on how you feel about Ewoks and how you feel about Jedi Rocks and the special, the special editions
1: all shit the bed. No, I don't count those.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but since 1983, every Star Wars movie has shit the bed with something just remarkably bad, even in a good movie. Here, they came close, like they sharded with Darth Maul, but they didn't shit the bed. Wow, that's the
3: shart moment?
2: Yeah. They jumped the chart.
3: <laughs> I thought it, I thought it would make you happy. That's
2: so crazy. But while this movie doesn't go as low as any Star Wars film since at least 99, it also doesn't hit any of the highs as much as any of the films since 99. There's nothing in this film as cool as the Darth Maul fight in episode one. There's nothing in this film as cool as Admiral Holdo flying her ship in hyperspace into that Star Destroyer in episode eight. There's no midichlorians, but there's no lava fight with Obi-Wan at the end either. So I think it's okay. I think current fans are going to like this. It's not going to make any new fans.
3: Judging by my audience,
2: it's not going to make any new money. But I thought it was okay, and
3: I can give this a solid recommend. Yeah, I do feel like I'm watching the end of an era. Like, this is how movies die.
1: Yeah, with thunderous applause. That, that's a line from Revenge of the Sith.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, the life <laughs> passes before your eyes and like you just replay the old stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, movies are definitely going to go away and the last movies are going to just be this. I would love so much. To see innovation come into the movie realm, but I don't know, maybe a new art form is more likely to just push it to the side. Well, some people say it's television that's doing it now, and I still think
2: when you're comparing the stuff that we review, I hate Comparing apples to oranges, but I felt Infinity War did more innovation than we saw here in Solo. I think it's specifically the Lucasfilm branch of Disney. Although it may be coming down from corporate, I mean, they are remaking every freaking hit they had animated live action now. They are playing it safe across the board, but I think that... It's going to hurt them. I think they do have to innovate or die. I would rather Star Wars take a break from itself than continue to be like, remember what you used to like? We're going to make a reference of it and it's going to cost $150 million to make.
3: Yeah, I hear, I think just announced the other day, Boba Fett's a Star Wars story is now coming. So they're just going to keep doing this. And- I'm okay with a Boba Fett movie.
1: I'm fine with, yeah, do take an old character. It's what is the story you're going to tell them. And do not cast Daniel Logan. Oh, no. Who's that? He's the guy
2: who played Boba Fett in episode two. Oh, no. They're not going to do that.
3: Um. (laughs) It's it's James Mangold. He did right by Wolverine. Yeah. I think that, again... Do you want to innovate, or do you want to be Lucas? If they wanted to innovate, make it R-rated. This is a bounty hunter. Show us a real edgy side to Star Wars. It's the movie to do it in, because it's not part of the real episode chronology, right? You can do more bold moves when you do these spinoffs and side projects. That's what I advocate, but it's not what I expect. I think they need to innovate. But what you're talking about is risk-taking?
1: Yeah. They're never going to do an R-rated Star Wars.
2: You take risks from a position of strength. You have to have had a string of unmitigated successes to then risk. I feel like Lucasfilm, despite my personal thoughts, can consider The Force Awakens an unmitigated success. But everything since then has certainly been divisive, especially episode eight. Now, I think Lucasfilm's on shaky ground. This is not the time to go bold. This is the time to try to rebuild.
3: This is why JJ is directing episode nine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah you want innovation we're bringing back jj again i mean he made the money he number one movie of all time folks and you recommend it it's a weak recommend these days <laughs> the
0: wow
1: it's, it's been downgraded officially
2: <laughs> it's a weak recommend but it's still a recommend there's that moment where freaking kylo ren catches that blaster bolt in midair that's freaking awesome there
3: are awesome things well maybe he'll come up with some awesome things for episode nine then
2: yeah as long as he leaves the mystery box under the tree and doesn't try to do that again
3: i don't know i star wars has never been my thing i don't have a lot of optimism but i almost feel like it's time to do something different because the old way it's unfashionable you know, people always act that trendiness is a bad thing, but y- yeah, you innovate or you die. They need to look at younger franchise and things that are hip with the kids now and say, how can we bring a little bit more of this into our world? Yeah, I agree. I'm really looking forward to the Ryan Johnson trilogy.
1: You're the, you're the you're the minority.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> Everything you said, other than I used to like Ryan Johnson. I still do. <laughs> I just he is. I don't want him anywhere near this franchise again.
1: Did you tear that? brick chapter out of our book and read that upset no i I like all three of his
3: early works and i would still support him doing an original idea yeah hopefully he does an original star wars idea hopefully that'll get put in turn around and he'll go do other things
2: Mm. but i do look at the jj movie as something we have to get through i maybe trailers will change my mind they often can
3: well i don't hold episode eight against it you could skip that entire movie it was essentially a chase I, i don't think that anything from that movie will that was bad will carry over into the new film i feel like if it gets back to where force awakens was it'll be a recommend well hopefully listeners you
2: enjoyed this conversation and continue to recommend our show i know this conversation kind of got down in the weeds a little bit at times but we're going to be much simpler next week Instead of having to deal with all these messy continuity
3: issues. What
1: awful video game movie are you doing?
3: Mortal Kombat!
1: Oh, you love that one.
3: I do. And there's two of them.
2: So just to let listeners know, we've got Mortal Kombat next week. Then the sequel the week after. Oceans 8 and Incredibles 2 coming very close together after that. So two more theatrical releases coming within a week of each other. Meanwhile, over on the donation feed, this week we finish the Assault on Precinct 13 retrospective, looking at the 2005 remake, as next Friday, we start purging. The Purge number one. It's all part of our silver donation series. $10 or more gets you six podcast reviews, The Two Assaults on Precinct 13s, The Four Purges, and if you want to go gold, we're doing the Pacino gangster films. A lot of those are already out. We've already done the entire Godfather trilogy. Donate $25 or more today, get the entire Godfather trilogy, and then coming a little later, Scarface, Dick Tracy, Carlito's Way, and Donnie Brasco. Go Platinum, get Pacino Cop films. We've done one of them, Serpico. But we're also going to be doing Cruising, Sea of Love, Heat. And an 11th hour edition, we're also going to be doing Righteous Kill. And then... We did review Deep Blue Sea 2 for anyone going great white. There's also four Jaws reviews, but if you like good movie reviews, Jaws 1. If you like funny (laughs) reviews of bad movies, hmm, Jaws the Revenge or Deep Blue Sea 2? Our donors have to let us know which one they find funnier.
3: And don't forget, there is going to be uh, Jurassic Park in a few weeks as well.
2: Yes, anyone who donated back a few years ago for Jurassic Park gets the new show, but if you missed out, you can donate now at the Jurassic level and get every bonus show we're doing, including Jurassic World, near the end of June. The schedule is up at nowplayingpodcast.com on the right. Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me. You bet. Listeners, thank you for listening. The podcast will be with you always.
3: Oh, we're in trouble for
0: a second, but it's fine. We're fine. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Star Wars retrospective series. We hope you've enjoyed the show.
1: You done flirting? I'm still ready.
0: If you like Star Wars, join Arnie and Marjorie at SWActionNews.com for Star Wars Action News, a podcast dedicated to Star Wars toys, books, games, and more. Get a Wookiee? Where'd he get a Wookiee? And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. If you come with us, you're in this life for good. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find hundreds of in-depth movie reviews, including every film in the Star Trek, Terminator, 2001, Back to the Future, Batman, and James Bond film series. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. You
2: played before? A couple times, yeah.
0: You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Nobody's in the seat, but you ain't a it from? Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to help keep the show going. I'll see you in 2000. That is. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. My money's on you, kid. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our host to review. Find the details on our website. Slow down, Hen. You want to while you're ahead. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Looks like you're uh, having a good day. I'm a lucky guy. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage.
1: Trust me, you're going to
0: love it. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're going to need a nickname because I ain't saying that every time. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Think. You want to make that move. You want to make that move. You made that move. Okay. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock waited a long time for a shot like this. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I know I'm feeling pretty lucky. Now Playing podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated, all rights reserved. There's no liars in this game, just players. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. What do you think? Well, what do you know? Now playing is the Venganza Media Production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We need to divert auxiliary power to the rear deflector shield. We
3: definitely do.
2: They were discussing Solo, starring Mario Van Peebles, William Sadler, Barry
3: Corbin.
1: Uh Uh-oh, I saw the wrong movie. I don't know what you're talking about.
3: Oh wait, you're talking about that stupid action movie from the nineties? Yeah. (laughs) Don't you guys remember Solo? (laughs) It took me a beat. Yes. (laughs) Poor Mario.
2: (laughs) That was so awful a movie. (laughs) It was from ninety-six. I stopped after Posse. And I'm thinking about actor who's in everything that I can't remember his name ever. He was in Thor with oh, the shake uh, Weight.
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I can't remember. He's in Dread. He's like the Star Dread, which I really like. Lord
3: of the Rings, this guy's yeah. Carl Urban.
1: Yeah. yeah. Carl Urban, that's it. I, I always confuse him with the country singer. <laughs>
3: yeah, yes, that's too. exactly what I was struggling with. I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, I don't want Nicole to say that Kidman's one.
2: <laughs> I, I keep th- I when Star Trek came out, I thought there was a country singer in his <laughs> bones. I'm like, that's bad. Beckett thinks, uh, it's you, a game of chicken. isn't it Emphis? No, Emphis, Emphi, Emphis. It's a terrible
3: name. Yeah. It's absolutely nest.
2: terrible name. <laughs> it's Crimson Dawn, right? Okay, I gotta remember like PM Dawn, Crimson Dawn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> that wow, that's a great mnemonic device. PM Dawn.
3: <laughs> not Red Dawn, not Crimson Tide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, there's so much Crimson though.
2: There's Crimson Empire, there's Crimson Sun. I'm telling you, I gotta remember the second word. I know it's Crimson. But I, I was thinking Crimson Dawn C D. Whose C D do I have? PM Dawn. <laughs> there you go, mnemonic device, yeah. But <laughs>
3: Is it Ray Parker or Ray Parker? Ray Parker
1: does Ghostbusters.
3: Okay.